I just decided early on, I know that I know that I know that all artists over all of all history and all future artists make a lot of bad work. That's just, that's how you get to the good work. All the good work stands on top of the bad work. And if I'm going to make a bunch of bad work, I am going to enjoy it. Hello and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast. I'm your host, Nishant Jain. Listeners, I have a confession to share. For weeks now, maybe maybe months, I've been feeling off about my art. It's not the lines that are wrong or it's not that I've stopped loving it. It's something else. This episode and a couple of previous conversations have helped me to identify the problem and to start moving towards some solutions. Here's what it is. As I've gotten more confident with my lines and more sure about the end product that I will produce after, say, an hour of work, I find myself taking fewer chances. The element of risk is gone. And while that might sound good, it really isn't. When we are in control of all the variables of a system, it works exactly like we intend. Let me uh, restructure that. It works only exactly as we intend. This is perhaps the best case scenario for a technical situation, but it is not the best case scenario for the creative process. You need something beyond your deliberate control, an element of magic and discovery to elevate things beyond your initial idea. In this conversation, I discover what that looks like and how it might work. You only need to take one look at Sandy Hester's work to know that she isn't afraid of taking risks. But it was when I saw her YouTube channel that I understood the true magic of her work. Sandy shares her thoughts, her ideas, her decisions, and even her hesitations without flinching on YouTube. She is a warm, funny, and generous artist who takes you on a wonderful journey with every video that she puts out. She is open and vulnerable in a way that I struggle to be, and from that aspect, I take many lessons. This is also perhaps one of the most fun conversations I've had on the show. The time just flew by. We faced some technical issues at the start, so we could only speak for, in quotes, I say only speak for, two and a half hours. But the conversation was so rich and there was still so much to share that I asked Sandy for some more time the next day. I thought we would wrap it up in another half hour on day two, but we ended up speaking for just over another hour, which would make this my longest episode. I'm so excited for you to hear this. So let me get out of my own way right now and let's begin. Good morning, Sandy, and welcome to the Sneaky Art Podcast after so much trial and error with our audio devices. <laughs> Thank you for joining me. I'm excited to be here, Nishant. I feel like we just like tackled a major feat of getting us on here to be able to chat together. So I'm looking forward to it. 
Yeah, yeah. For, so for listeners, I'll tell that uh, we had major trouble being able to hear each other and we changed audio devices and we uh, considered changing uh, the laptops themselves, but it turns out it was just a problem of the browser. And once we change that, now we can hear each other clearly and finally we're able to talk. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> So Sandy, I, I really, firstly, I, of course, I really enjoy your art, but I am so fascinated by your YouTube channel. And one of the privileges of running your own podcast is that you get to have conversations with everybody who interests you and you get to start those conversations however you like. So what I like to do is I like to start at interesting meaty points, like a just jumping into the deep end of conversations. So I want to go to this video of yours that I really enjoyed. It was about how to loosen up your art. And you were talking about this specific thing that really vibed with me. You were talking about how as a perfectionist and as an artist who is who is motivated by perfectionism, it's important to to loosen up your work, to lose control in a sense. So I want to ask you a little bit about what, what it means as a perfectionist to quote unquote, lose control. Mm. Well, I don't know if I gave that impression on that video that I'm a perfectionist. I'm definitely not a perfectionist. I think I started off in my artwork being more tight, which I think most people do when they start their, their artwork, they're trying to recreate what they see. And I realized I wasn't enjoying creating artwork in that way and also enjoyed artwork that was looser when I was looking at other artwork. So then I started down that path of chasing that and also just realized I had a lot more fun in that manner of creating art, but also just realized early on that there was a lot of voices kind of at the root and wanted to get to the root of what those things that I was saying as I'm making art, we were always just chattering away to ourselves. And a lot of times we're not really listening or sifting what we're saying to see if it's really true, if it's good, if it's right, if it's the way that we really line up with those things. So I started realizing early on that there was kind of this I think in all of us as creators, this innate like famous artist kind of voice, like ooh, this we chase that. I don't know why, because nobody's ever really famous till they're dead. So why are we even chasing that now? But there's something about like, ooh, is this one piece gonna be my everything? And and I started realizing like that's not what this is. That's not what I want to chase. That I really feel like creating is a gift and it's a really special gift. And people that don't have any of that look in on us and our world and are like, Ooh, I wish I could do that. And then those of us that are in that world, often we're not enjoying it. We're kind of slodging through it. We're so self-critical. All the, I mean, I could do a whole list of all the negatives and we're not really enjoying it at as much as what people on the outside think that we are and should be. You know what I mean? I um, I did that video and a friend of mine who's quite a famous artist and has been doing it for a long time and just mind-blowing work. She said, man, I watched that video, Sandy. She said, I've never even thought about enjoying my work. I've just been like pressing through, slogging in. And she said, man, I'm too old. I'm going to start working at enjoying it. And I just was like, what? You've not been enjoying. I just kind of can't even imagine that. And 
I can see that it's hard for her to enjoy it. There's just, but I can also see the mound of pressure and weight that she's put on herself. She's in a transition time. All of us artists, we kind of go through that at times, a transition of we're a little bored with the way we're creating now, or there's a new subject matter that's interests us. There's a shift. And in that shift, we go back to making bad work again and having to explore. And it's either going to be painful and critical and filled with all negative again, or we're going to enjoy it. And she's in that. And I can tell it's really bothering her. And I resonate with that because I've recently went through a big shift in my work, too, and will be over and over. And I've just decided to press in and just enjoy it. And everybody that's watching me and seeing my stuff is just going to have to put up with it because I... I put my work out there for everybody to just see. And I've, I've, I've um, decided that I do want everybody to see what it looks like to be a real artist. And that's to make a lot of bad work and some good work. And um, so I just kind of put it out there. But I think going back to that question of what it looks like, I think you're either going to struggle if you're a perfectionist, but you don't even have to be a perfectionist, I think, to struggle with what you're creating and all the inner critical voice and all the root of the, all the negative talk. Um, you have to work at that. And I've been working at it for years and kind of building big muscles of good self-talk. And um, it's really benefited my work and more than even just the work. I just have a lot of fun Nishant, in my creative process. I mean, it has just... I don't know. I just feel like I'm like a creating maniac and having so much fun doing it and want that to show in my work too. You know, I want to create work that it looks like somebody's like, man, she had so much fun doing that. Your work definitely gives that impression. But what you just said has so much wisdom in it. And I'm curious to like about the internal chatter, especially because sometimes it can feel like it's like, you know, the angel and the devil on either side of you, because you need that internal chatter, because making art is such a lonely process, like you're in your own head, and you have to sort of plumb the depths of your own self to find what is it that I want to do? Why am I doing this? What makes what is good? What is bad, even whether it's colors or lines or composition. So that internal conversation is really crucial. But it it can also be our worst enemy. Because as you mentioned, you tend to have the ghosts of all the art and the artists you like telling you why you need to be as good as them and you need to be as good as them right now with this piece and with every piece. So this process of sort of coming to understand that, you know, you have to listen to your internal voice sometimes, but sometimes you just have to put it on mute. What what was that like? Like, was it was it a struggle for you? Did it take a lot of time to come to this understanding? I think I just was able to see what things stifled my joy in creating. And those were the voices that I was like, zip it. Nope. You don't get a voice in here. And I also had some really like top of the shelf things that I determined pretty early on for not only my artwork, but my business. So how I was going to do YouTube, how I was going to share things on Instagram, Um, there's just things that I thought, okay, this is going to be what I'm going to look at and is going to be number one is going to be underlined, however you want to say it. And I'm not going to let anything else come in the way. So things like I am not going to 
allow what other people like determine what I'm making. It's encouraging at times, but I can I know when I'm creating things that are going to be a short stint that I'm going to be bored with quickly. And that's nice that people want this and they're going to buy it and they give me a lot of follows and all that. But I'm not I know I'm not going to camp out there and I sure can't camp out there just because people like it. I can tell I'm going to be bored with it quickly or this is a short little part of my journey and I'm moving on. And so I don't spend I just don't anchor a lot in what other people say or want to buy. I just keep going back to, no, I've got to stay on the journey. I've got to trust my gut in this and I'm going to keep moving on. Um, The other thing is I've really um, decided to share the good and the bad. Um, So I think that's helpful. I get a lot of feedback in that way. So some things that I think aren't that good. I'm always kind of like, oh, that's usually what people like best. <laughs> and things that I like, I'm like, well, this is probably going to sell because I love it. <laughs> it's going up on the wall. And it's one of those things that Grady's kind of like, well, that's interesting. Um, let's see, I'm trying to remember the original question. Um, oh, the, the voices. Yes. So things that, that stifle my joy. Anything that is, usually it's those negative things that actually aren't really healthy to be speaking into us that are joy suckers. Usually joy suckers aren't really there to help, okay? They're usually in the way, and I don't even care if maybe they are good. If they steal my joy in in the process, then they're out. They're not allowed to come in the studio. It's zip, 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 get out. And I've been able to just kind of recognize that pretty quickly over the years. And then I can also sometimes tell just in my body the way I'm painting if I – um, start leaning in. If I'm holding the brush tighter, I can just, my, it's just all the red flags go up and I'm like, okay, what am I saying to myself? What, what are the voices right now? Because this is, I've learned time and time and time again, that this is the best way to ruin my painting now because everything else was going great. And I was nice and loose and didn't have any of this in. And now that, Oh no, you're going to mess it up. This was going to be the thing that made you famous. Oh no, this is, this was going to be a one that people buy and have to be like, shut up, get out of the studio. But remember everything was going good. Sandy, just loosen up again. Just keep with the way that you, you know, with the way you were painting or it is a bad painting. I've just decided early on. I know that I know that I know that all artists, over all of all history and all future artists make a lot of bad work. That's just, that's how you get to the good work. All the good work stands on top of the bad work. And if I'm going to make a bunch of bad work, I am going to enjoy it because that's a lot of my time. And um, so it can feel like you're wasting paint and paper, all the stuff, the material that costs a lot. And so that's some of the voices that are coming in. Oh, this is a waste. And I just have to go, no, it's not. This is part of the process, part of the business. Zip it. You don't get to say anything here. And I've also just been doing this long enough that I also know that things that I think aren't good um, may still sell. And then maybe in five years, like I've got a painting up on my studio wall right now. I was cleaning. We we uh, cleaned out the studio and I came up. Bunch of, came around a bunch of old paintings, and I remember how I felt about one of them when I painted it. I stopped because I wasn't enjoying it. I didn't think it was going very well. 
put it off to the side because I don't throw anything away. I was told that early on, don't throw anything away. And I don't now. I'm so glad I listened to that, um, that advice. And I looked at that painting and I thought, I can't believe I felt all that when I looked at this, because this is amazing. And I'm going to go put this in a frame right now on the wall in the studio because I'm enjoying it. Uh, I was like, this was really good. So I've, I've had enough of that over my seasoned career to know that I can't trust myself in the moment. And so I just don't even start that kind of conversation anymore, you know? There is the other dialogue that you talked about, Nishant, about needing to be able to assess your work. But first you need to be able to, to determine that there's two different assessings. There's the just criticalness and the, uh, and that usually sounds like, you know, whatever your sounds like, you know what I mean? But it, you can put whatever words to it, but it has this gunky feel about it. It has like this sinking low feel, you know what I mean? The words that are attached to that. And then there's a, uh, and sometimes we, we can't even get past that to really get to good critical assessing. Because there's so much of that. The good critical assessing has a smaller, less emotional, blobity blob, vulnerable feel to it. And in fact, I had somebody ask me a question just the other day. She said, I wish you would talk more on your YouTube channel about color. And my response was, well, I feel like I talk a lot about color. So what do you mean by that? And she said, well, I think I mean more about like your color choices. And I said, I I really just think it's instinctual. Like I know what I like and I know what I don't like. And it's the same with how I feel about the way I'm putting paint on a canvas or paper, the colors that I'm using. Like over time, I've been able to go, I really like this or I don't like this at all. And that comes down to everything about the way I mix the paint, the way I hold a pencil, the tools that I use. And at the top of the list is always the decision of, do I enjoy this? If I don't enjoy it, I'm just not going to do it. Even if the outcome may be a really good painting and the process of that may make really great work. Because I do have a lot of ways I can paint now after all these years. And there's just some that I've decided to chuck out the door because I just don't enjoy it anymore. And I'm just not going to do it. Even if it may make me a lot of money or whatever, it's just not life's too short. And I am determined to enjoy this gift. And I just see way too many people around me not enjoying it. I hear people all over the internet. I mean, I constantly am hearing things like, I'm so nervous or this, I'm scared. I don't know, just words that I'm like, these are extreme and I just don't think they should be tied to art. <laughs> I had a friend that's really, she's kind of getting into art. And she, I've been giving her little assignments and she texted me the other day. She goes, I'm so nervous about doing this. It was something about drawing a face. And I texted her back and was like, uh, this is really the last thing on earth that you need to be nervous about. Like this is art is not something that she, she said, that's true. She goes, good advice. I'm not going to be nervous. So I don't know. Sometimes I feel like we attach these strong words that it's just like, hey, people, this is art. Do you remember back in the day when we were kids and we were just like in it, just crayons flying and maybe this was going to make it to the fridge, but we didn't even really care. You know what I mean? It was just stuff flying and it was just enjoyable. We didn't have any of the thoughts of, oh no, are the parents going to enjoy this or is somebody going to we're just in it, head down, just creating. Right, right. Like you're, you're so correct, and uh, so many of what uh, the things you've said uh, they resonate with 
some ideas that I've discussed before on the show. So for example, just what you just said about being kids. And I often think about what is the essential difference between when we were kids and when we grew up. And when we were kids and everybody you speak to was drawing or painting or coloring when they were kids. And what was so crucial then and what changes as an adult is that when we were kids, we were doing it because it was fun to do. We didn't have a sense of what is great art, what is bad art. And it was almost irrelevant because the time that you spent on the paper, you know, hunched over it with your crayons, that was a fun time. And what it looks like at the end, whether it matches up to something, something, something. Firstly, you don't even have all these ideas of what is good art. You haven't seen all that stuff. You're not trying to be someone else. You're just enjoying this process. And I was speaking to another uh, YouTuber. She's a friend of mine in Amsterdam. And we were talking about this thing that during the pandemic, she, she sort of tried to reassess her relationship with art. And she gave herself this rule that for the next few months, and she, I think she said this rule before the pandemic came about. So her idea included traveling. Uh, I'm only going to do things that are fun. And I'm only going to do things that feel fun on that day in that moment and not if they feel like work. And once the pandemic came in, of course, her world was limited. So she was stuck inside her home. and But she still tried to pursue this goal. And as it turned out, as it transpired for her, pursuing things just for the fun of it ended up letting her achieve the same goals as if she had thought of it as work, except that she now had joy at the center of her her workflow and every day brought her joy. And I, I, I feel like that's that's a very difficult thing. It's not so easy for people to do that. And it takes a lot of time to sort of come to that understanding, especially what you mentioned about, you know, everyone's good work standing on top of their bad art. I feel like that also takes a lot of time to understand. So you're making me very curious about this process by which you have arrived at these understandings. Let's let's take this all the way back to being young and starting to draw and paint like we all do. What were your motivations? How did you, what inspired you to keep at it? How did you go about this process of learning and going through so much stuff that you were able to understand what's important and what's irrelevant? Well, I wanted to say something too to what you just said. I think as a child, our identity is not tied up in what we're creating. And as we grow up, we're looking for what where our identity is tied and what's going to make us something special in the world and to those around us. And when we put our identity in something like our work, which is going to fail us, you know what I mean? I mean, maybe for some, it means everything, but even those that succeed, but their identity is fully tied to that, it's never really fully satisfying. My full identity, like my work is not say everything about me and who I am. I really enjoy it. It's a big part of my life, but it's not going to be the end all be all of who I am. Also, I do want to say something about some of the language we're using. I did, I spoke at a, a, um, 
I was invited to be a guest speaker at something and was talking about enjoying the process, this kind of thing. And I had one lady say, that's what everybody says. Enjoy the process. Enjoy the process. She was kind of like really giving it to me. It was, I was starting to sweat. I was like, oh, first off, I don't even listen to that stuff. I was like, oh, I didn't know everybody was saying that. I'm just, this was something I've come to in my own work. And she said, you know, I'm going through a real crappy time in, in life right now. And I'm, I'm not like happy and having like, I don't, she was just basically saying like, it's just not a joyful time. And I said, what I'm not, I'm not using this language as, oh, let's all be happy. Like, it's not that I said, it's, I'm talking about a comfortableness. I'm talking about a non-stressed level. It's kind of like maybe you have a country road or a place that you like to go hike that feels very relaxing. It feels a place of comfort and rest for you, a place of serenity. It's a place that you're not stressed about. And whether life is going super well, maybe that's a place you love to go and walk and think on things. But when you've also just had something really hard in life, it's a place that it's not a place of stress for you and it doesn't bring all the junk, right? So for me, my studio and my practice I've worked hard for it not to be a place that is stressful. It's a place that I'm going to have right thoughts. So I've worked hard at having all the negative stuff that's not helpful not be there. Now, does it mean that it's just happy, joyful? That's not what I mean. But what I mean is I work hard to, um, when I say enjoy the process, it means that the process isn't getting in my way and all the self-identity, this is going to make me great, just or critical that that's not going to be there. It's a place where I can be comfortable and uh, not worry about what Instagram people are saying, you know, all the outside voices or internal voices. You know what I mean? So that's what I mean. I don't want people to hear like, there is a little bit of struggle. There is a lot of, especially in the early days when you, you're not creating anything good. And it does feel frustrating. I'm, I'm validating this. I'm not trying to not validate those things. There can be frustration, but do you let it get to the frustration point where then you can't create? Like there can be a frustration of like, okay, I'm not there yet, but what everybody always says is keep on, keep on. So I'm going to, I, there's something about this that I like enough that I'm willing to recognize, okay, this isn't that great but actually could be better than what you think um, and be able to start sharpening the tools without the um, things that come with like the newbie that can stifle everything. I mean, how many people in shot have you, and you, you may have experienced this too, where the frustration level gets to a point where you just want to throw in the towel. And then there's some of us that are like, no, like I need this. I want this. And um, I, you're either going to, let those negative voices grow to a place where they stifle so much or um, just like when you're maybe learning to cook or there's a lot of things, other things in life, gardening or whatever. We don't let it get to the level in our heads that we do. I think as artists, I feel like there's other things that we can press through and learn. Okay. I'm not a great cook right now. Well, I'm going to keep practicing. I'm keep playing. That's the only way to get a, to be a better cook. I don't know why we don't equate it in art. We just get too blah, blah, blah up in our head. Yeah. I think yes, you're so correct in so many ways here because you know, I feel like with we, we do treat art as something removed from all the other 
skills. Like art is something you just have. It's just something so innate that if you can't bring it out of you, there's something wrong with you. You either can't do it ever, so you don't deserve to do it. And so everything you've done is just bad stuff because it's supposed to be a hundred percent success rate. Like, and I love what you said about not mixing up the joy with this simplistic idea of happiness. Like it's not always smiles. Like I have a, I have a resting grumpy face when I'm drawing and I am super like I'm, I'm having the time of my life, but I don't have a smile on my face. Like I'm really focused and my, my, my brows are furrowed and I'm really paying attention. I'm taking everything in, but it's, to call it just happiness is reductionist. And I feel like I'm also guilty of it. Sometimes if somebody asks me, hey, how do you keep doing it? How do you keep drawing all the time? I just say I enjoy it and you should also enjoy it. And I think it's possible that they interpret that as constant happiness. So how do you, and maybe they mean to ask me, how do you go through the parts where you are struggling? Or you, how do you go through the parts where you're trying to draw something and it's not quite working? It's very difficult for you to do, especially in those early stages when, you know, you're still building your skills and every day brings a new challenge. So it's not, it's not happiness, but it's something maybe, and I'm using another simplistic word, but maybe it's a little closer. It's something like positive vibes. Like when you feel like you're doing something that is helping, it's helping you to process something. It's helping you to to, and and that process involves shutting out so much else. Like you were talking about how our identity is tied to what we do when we are adults. And that is such a crucial point. We set such a high cost to the act of putting pen or brush to paper that this piece is going to define me as an artist. This piece needs to be as good as any art I have ever seen. And it's such a negative attitude until we learn to embrace the bad things we do and accept that, well, it's just a drawing and that it's so powerful to accept that it's just a piece of paper. It's just me scratching on it with my pen. What does it matter if I make a piece of bad art? But it's a challenge even, you know, it's a challenge when you're not so good at it and you're young to the idea of making art, but it's also a consistent challenge even when you're much later in your career, because now you get bowed down by the expectations of all these people who look at your work. Do you feel that way now, now that you have attention towards your work? Um, I don't, and I'm thankful for that. I did wonder how that would affect me. I think it's because of this whole time that I've been working on my thoughts. I think there's a couple things that go on too. So I think when people come to art, maybe they're coming back to it, you know, as an adult. So they're new, or maybe they did it for a long time, but then had a long time. Um, there's something about us that feels like it should be easy. I think because as we all did it as children, right? And then also really good art often looks simple. People don't, you don't realize until you get into it how hard and how much work it takes. And I, some people are going to either press through that and enjoy the chase and the hunt of it. Um, and then, or some people like just give up because they feel like, oh, I should be able to do this. And then you can't. But I think there's also, Nishant, um, there is something about the chase and the journey. Like, I don't know about you, but I think there's a big chunk of us that, you now the voices, all the negative voices can stifle this. 
and make it really unenjoyable. But for, for the most part, I think a lot of times, a lot of us, we enjoy the challenge. We enjoy the, the hunt of it. It's kind of like a hunter, right? The hunter enjoys being out there in creation, doing all the hunter things. It's great if he catches the deer, you know, kills the deer and brings it home and they get to eat it. Like that's the best of the best hunts. But all the hunts have their own journey and their own memories with it. And I know that that's, for me, part of it. So when I can get discouraged in whatever I'm doing, especially when I've changed something, maybe changing mediums or a new subject or something, there is that like, ooh, it just feels like a challenge and it feels like a hunt. And then when the negative things start coming, I go, no, no, just don't let that bother you because tomorrow you're going to feel completely different. And it's going to be like, you've put the backpack on to go out on the journey again, and it's going to be all fun. Um, so I kind of like uh, I've got a painting I started yesterday and I love by the end of the day that I was like, this is terrible because I'm not going to feel any pressure tomorrow. It's going to feel so exciting. A white piece of paper feels exciting to me. And I know part of that is because I have worked so much on the negativity that just all the funness just bubbles to the surface and excitement. But I do think the identity and all that comes from, we think it should be simple. It does say so much about us. And you're exactly right that if we can just realize this is one piece of paper, it's one sketch, it's just some paint. It just doesn't say everything. It does free us up to enjoy that day out, you know, in the city sketching or in the studio so much more. But I do think those things take the muscles of practice. Okay. So you did ask me, we haven't gotten to the question. You asked me about how did that kind of journey come along? Yeah. So I got, I've always been creative and I dabbled in all kinds of things growing up. My grandmother was an artist. So she was the first one to teach me, you know, to put a loaded paintbrush in my hand. And I started loving painting, but I wasn't really encouraged a lot in it growing up. Um, I mean, nothing negative to my parents just was, you know, I mean, they said positive, you know, encouraging things here and there, but it just wasn't, I never really thought about being just an artist, right? I didn't even, I took one art class in high school and that was it. I didn't take any other art stuff, but, um, I dabbled in jewelry making all kinds of creative things growing up. It was always there. And then, uh, I think sometime in my twenties, I got some watercolor and some paper because I'm very cheap and that felt like an easy thing to start off with painting. And I knew I wasn't very good at it, but I loved it. I did not even want my husband to look. He would walk by and I would throw myself over. Oh, It was all that early identity stuff, right? I just, I would burst out sweating. I mean, um, I just wanted to be able to do it, but I didn't want anybody to see it because so much felt wrapped up in it. All the blah, 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 you know, it was just there. Too, way too much. I wish I had people speaking into me early just to be like, Sandy, please, like you're thinking way too highly of yourself. Just get over yourself and just, it's just paper and paint. Like nobody, nobody really cares. And the fact is though, when people did see stuff, they went on and on about it and people wanted to buy stuff. And I went on a trip um, to uh, Turkey uh, we took a group from our church over there to minister to some women. And I was painting one day and there was a lady there that saw me and I was heading back to my room and she said, Hey, were you the lady over there painting? I started bursting out in sweat. My heart's palpitating. 
I said, yes. <laughs> she said, Cassie, your work. And I just grabbed it and I said, no, <laughs> I ran to my room. And then we had paint, we had taken a bunch of gifts to these women. We were going to minister and serve. And I had painted a bunch of cards. I thought, well, these women are on the other side of the world. I'll never see them. I don't care. I can paint them some stuff that felt safe. Right. Well, what I didn't know was that the women that I went with were going to lay out all the gifts that we took. So they laid out all these cards that I painted. So I came up that night, saw the stuff. I'm just panicking inside. I mean, I look back and I think, Sandy, once again, why? Like, it's just not that big of a deal. But I just remember the big dealness that it was. I mean, I even felt a little out of breath, like recalling just the nervousness and everything, thinking of how I was feeling. Well, of course, all, all the women there, my friends, all the ladies there just went on and on and on. I would have rather just held out all my dirty underwear and then just look at that than my art. I felt mortified. It was so weird because they were saying nice things, uh, but I just felt really embarrassed by it. So uh, that lady set me down that night, finger in the face for 45 minutes. You've got a God-given gift. You need to get over yourself. This is pride. And uh, I was like, really? She was like, yeah, you've got a gift and you need to use it. And this is really prideful. And I was like, really? And she was like, yeah. So so I was like, okay, okay. All right. I hear, I hear. And I feel it. You know what I mean? I feel that whatever all this is, is not good. So I came home. I started a blog. That felt like a safe way to distancely show my work. And, And just little things started happening. You know, people started to see my work. I still can get all those same feelings when people come over to our house and go in my studio, though. I don't know why that can still feel like that, like exposure and that kind of thing, because my work is shown all over the Internet. But in that, I was painting and creating things very, very tight and detailed. In fact, I have this one painting of a grasshopper that's very detailed, and my dad loves it. He really kind of liked my work better. I think he's starting to come around, but he liked my work when it was very detailed. I think a lot of people think that equals really good work. Most people don't realize how hard looser work is until they try to do it. And, uh, you know, there'd be times that he would say, I wish you painted like back, you know, with the grasshopper. And and sometimes that like affects me, you know, I would have to be like, sometimes I would think, oh, maybe I do want to do that because you want to please people, you know, that have that are in your life and things like that. But I just started early on realizing I'm not enjoying this. Is this not how I want to paint? I have to start squelching those voices if I want to to paint in the way that I want to paint. You know what I mean? Because I realized it wasn't fun. I just wasn't enjoying it. I was literally leaving those painting sessions feeling like I needed a massage, some Advil. It felt, you know, my shoulders are all... It just, I thought, this is not how art should be. Now, I'm not saying that you have to paint loose to enjoy it. You can paint very tight and detailed. But if you leave there feeling stressed out, I just don't think stress and art should be in the same category. I just don't. Um, So that's where the thinking about how I was thinking and working on the way that I wanted to work and stifling the voices that were telling me what they wanted. I think all that started early. And just making decisions and realizing, I think part of it is first just even realizing what you're saying to yourself. We just say stuff all the time and we don't have a really good sift for those things. So that's where 
that motivation for that, realizing what kind of art I liked and what I wanted to do and anything that kind of got in the way of that, whether it was myself or other voices, I would practice taking the ax out and chopping off the head of like, no, you know, you don't get to say that. Um, so yeah, I think that's just kind of, and that's going to be the rest of my life. There's always going to be people that I care about. I mean, Grady, my own husband, he doesn't really love the style, which does not bother me. Art is so personal. You know what I mean? And it's just, it, you can't take that personally. Like you have to realize that that's not a um, negative thing about your character. If somebody doesn't like that style work. In fact, I painted a painting recently, a really big one to go over our fireplace that I loved. And I told Grady, I said, I think I'm, I'm going to put this over our fireplace. And he paused. I could tell I felt it. I knew that there was like, oh, he does not love this. And his words, okay, please let me remember the word he used. Okay, I did. He said, literally, he said this. Well, that won't be a travesty if you do, if you put that over the fireplace. <laughs> I was like, what? He said, I said, what? It won't be a travesty. He said, I said, it won't be a travesty. Right. <laughs> so generous. <laughs> I was like, Grady. Um, and we get a good laugh at it. Listen, Grady could not be a bigger supporter of mine. I mean, he is my number one. And he's really good about being able to tell me if something's working or not, even if he doesn't like love the style or whatever I'm doing. Um. And I think it helped, it's helpful for me to have a constant practice of that because I have somebody who maybe doesn't care for the style, but still loves the artist and appreciates the work. But it's a, a practice for me not to get my emotions tied up and hang my identity on what somebody else feels about what I'm creating and being able to practice just creating just, this is what comes out of me. Mary Fedden, wait, was it Mary Fedden that said this? Yes, Mary Fadden, she's no longer alive, but something she said really stuck with me. She, uh, in a video interview, was pointing back to work she did in her early days, maybe in maybe her 20s. And she was in her, I don't know, 70s or 80s at this point. She was quite old. And she said, I want to get back to painting like that, but I just can't seem to. She said, I, just what comes out of the brush is what comes out. She said, I find it very difficult to paint any other way than the way that you're painting. And I just thought, yes. And so what I heard in that was a lesson of contentment. I'm not painting as loose as what I would like to be painting or other things about it that I would like to be. But this is the way I'm painting. And this is the way I'm sketching. And I'm going to practice and press into contentment. Of knowing this is what it is, and I can either be discontent with it, which comes with a whole list of negativities and feeds things in me that I don't want fed, or I can be like, well, this is what it is, and I'm having fun doing it, and part of it is a journey, and maybe at some, I, I don't know, will we ever, what if we never are, are content, like really feel like, yes everything. One, that feels a little boring. There's something about that that feels a little boring. And wouldn't it be a shame to get to the very end and be like, oh, I never, I never got there because maybe it's that we're supposed to be 
I feel like right. I, I didn't say that well, but do you? Yeah, I I think I think so. There's this uh, there's this nuance between being content and being settled because being content does not imply that, and you're not saying that you're not constantly trying to be better. You're always trying to self improve, but that does not preclude being content and taking joy. I think so. There's this idea that I want to share with you, and maybe tell me what you think of it. There's this uh, concept of how we set goals for ourselves and we set goals for how good we want to be or what we want to be or something like, oh, I want to make $100,000 or I want to be featured in so-and-so art magazine. And something like that, you know, a goal is almost like, say, a peak that you're looking at in the horizon. And you say that once I achieve that, I'm going to be happy. Because this is my goal. And once I achieve my goal, I'm going to be happy. And what that also does is that it postpones the moment when you're allowed to feel happy. It's also a lie. Right. Exactly. Because once you reach the horizon, there is a new horizon. It's such a lie. Yeah. Right. Right. So uh, this person uh, advocated that instead of a goals approach to life, we should have a systems approach to life. And a systems approach to life is sort of saying that instead of thinking that this is what you need to do in order to feel worthy or in order to feel good, every day you should do the things that make you feel good. Uh, Having a system that works for you or that satisfies you or that gives you contentment or joy done daily, done diligently all the time. Firstly, it's easier to do it all the time if you know why you're doing it, if you get that primary feeling of happiness from it in some sense. Done over and over again will inevitably lead to you achieving some very worthy goals and some good accomplishments, but you will also always have joy at the center of your work and you will not delay it for some some magical moment when you achieve something great because this, it, this is a this is a persistent problem for me. For example, I would set a goal of having so many fans on Instagram. For example, like when I just started Instagram, I was like, oh, you know, one day I want a thousand fans. One day I want 5,000 fans. But you reach that point and nothing changes. You didn't arrive anywhere. You're the same person. But because I've spent so much time feeling like I need to be that person in order to feel good about my art, now that I've reached this point and I don't feel any different, am I allowed to be happy? Maybe maybe I was supposed to aim for 10,000 fans. So let's try to get to that number. Maybe that will somehow bring me some magical feeling of joy. And we get caught in this loop. Uh, first off, I am not a goals oriented. I'm just not a goals person. I'm not somebody that, I mean, I've just recently will kind of throw out some numbers and January, like we'll usually go on a camping trip um, between Christmas and New Year. And we've been throwing out some numbers, but I'm just not like a goals person. It's just kind of fun if it's like, oh, we reached that number or okay, we didn't. It's just not a big deal. I think some people are a little more goal oriented than not. I think one of the reasons I'm not that, um, and something that does help me just be more in the moment, enjoy the day. I have a lot of health issues and I've had a lot of health issues for a number of years. And I do think you can either with certain things in life, lean into, uh, bitterness, discontentment, and these kinds of things or contentment and build muscles of, of just 
finding joy and contentment where you are. I'm a Christian and I do think a lot of my faith-based beliefs do feed into those things. And But with my health stuff, it's very much been sometimes just more of a dripping, sucking of life kind of things or big seasons where it's like, all of life just shut down. And Grady's really good too about helping me with it. You know, it may be like, okay, for three months now, I'm going to be laid up on the couch because of this surgery. And I can either just be in depression about that and, oh no, and blah, 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 all this stuff. Or, okay, well, this is what I get to do now. It's just, this is my little window. Let me figure out what supplies I can use on the couch. How I can do this. Let's, and make the most of those seasons. I even just do that with things, um, the health issues that I have that are more dripping, uh, you know, drip, like when I say dripping, I just mean they're not like made, you know, it's more of like a dailiness. They affect my dailiness and can either be a real pain in the rear or I can make the most of that. Like my blood sugar is really dropping right now. I have type one diabetes, so it's an immune um, system thing. And I have two medical devices, which can be major pain in the rears because they're always yelling at me and beeping and dying, all the stuff, right? Or so those th- kinds of things help me build muscles a lot because in the middle of the night, alarms are going off all night and sometimes it just feels so frustrating. And sometimes what I have to do is preach back to myself of just like, Sandy, don't do all the drama. Just do what you, just check your blood sugar right now, do the stuff and go back to sleep. Like just do it, right? And so those things then roll over into my normal life of things too. And I also, because of my health issues, seasons where I'm healthier and feel good. Um, in the early days of health issues, I felt this, I couldn't enjoy the, the, not the healthier days. I felt more of the, Oh no, this is only going to last for a short while. It felt like that. And I thought, golly, I'm wasting the healthy days by all the, this is, and I thought, okay, how do I overcome this? I don't want to waste those and the fear of it. And then I started seeing cycles that it was like, okay, I'm sick for a while and it's not been, you know, earth mother. It's just, okay, we change life and we do different rhythms and the healthier days come. And then I got where I just, when the healthy days were there, I just, man, it just feels like I'm bubbling over with just soak it up and enjoy it. And then when the unhealthy days come, I'm able to preach back to myself, like this won't last for forever. And this is a time to rest. And, um, but even in the dailiness of it, when my blood sugar's dropping and I have to sit, I have to stop painting. I'm in the flow of something and I can feel the frustration and I go, nope, just go sit down, make the most of this 45 minutes and edit a video or, but you see what I'm saying? That transition time where I can feel like, Oh, all the, and all the blah can come with it. The practice of going, Zip that, Sandy. That sucks so much energy. All the energy that that's going to take with all the blobbity blob, instead of just sitting down, quieting that voice that wants to go, oh, life, and I can't do what I want. And this always gets in my, you know what I mean? Like it can just sound like, you just going, nope, just go sit down and make the most of this 45 minutes because you're going to be back up and painting in an hour and it's going to be fine. Your blood sugar is probably going to be high as a kite and then you're going to need to be painting. So I think it's that dailyness of life of practicing those things and building strong muscles of realizing what I'm saying, what it's doing or not doing in 
taking hold of that quickly. So, and again, a lot of that is just built in with my faith and what I believe and what the Bible says and all that kind of stuff too. So all of that flows into my art practice and that was probably more than you wanted to know, but it <laughs> no, is also uh, I- entwined. Right, but I'm I'm actually going to go a little deeper. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I I really loved this part you said about when you were struggling to show your work to other people, and I I love it because this is exactly a problem that I had for many uh, for many years, and to some extent I think it's just a part of who I am. It will persist in me always. So I started making what I called sneaky art because. I was so ashamed of what I was doing. I was like in my late 20s and I had decided that I need to start to learn to draw properly. I used to draw stick figures and I wanted to just, I, and I'd tried my whole life to draw. Like I had all those how to draw books and I would copy drawings out of comic books and I would hope that this is going to make me draw better and nothing seemed to work for me. And I just hit upon this thing when I was in Chicago that this is the most beautiful city I've seen. And I really want to see more of this city. And I really want to, I've quit my job. I've decided to become a full-time writer and I want to make web comics. So I want to also draw better. It's now that I'm doing it full-time, it's my responsibility to learn to do it properly, to do it, you know, to that standard that I had in my mind. So I need to learn. And I started going out to draw, but I was so ashamed of this act that I'm in my late 20s and now I want to learn how to draw. Like what an absurd thing. What if somebody sees me? So I'm going to be very quiet. I'm going to sit in the corner and I'm going to draw very quickly. And then I'll get out of there before they see me, before anybody asks me a question. So quote unquote, sneaky about it. And uh, this is how I did it for months and months and months. And I was mortified at the idea that somebody might be over my shoulder and look at my sketchbook or somebody might ask what I'm doing. And it set, it really set alarm bells in my mind. If I even heard footsteps around me, I would instinctively (laughs) start shutting my sketchbook so they wouldn't ask. And uh, it takes so much time to get over that. Like, I don't think I'm fully over that. It's just, it's just me. Although I'm so, I I completely, now I've reached a point where I understand that that's irrational. Nobody is going to say anything mean to you. Your art is good now. And uh, you don't have to think this way because people are not, not negative in this way. This is our worst fears in our mind, playing up on each other and building into this fake thing that doesn't ever, ever happen. (laughs) I want to go back to this lady who told you, to who pointed her finger and gave you a, a lecture and told you that you need to put more time into art. And she said this thing that you said, that it's not shame, but pride. And I find that very interesting. Can you tell me a little bit about how what, what that means? How is it pride and not shame? Well, I think because it comes down to just this self-worship thing that we have built. It's exactly what you just said. There's this building up of ourself in our head. That's just, it's a lie. Nobody is even thinking like that. So we could just take that scenario. I mean, I've had that scenario even now because of all of what's been going on with isolation and all that. I'm going to have, I have to have more of that kind of conversation when I go out in public too. It's this, the root of it is, Hey, Sandy, nobody really cares. (laughs) You're not as, do you see how it can be like this self-worship? We're putting ourselves up here and we're the only ones doing that, right? Nobody else sees us in that way. And it's this kind of negative, very prideful 
this is who you are and everybody's going to have their eyes on you. And um, when I started realizing it, I'll have conversations like this to myself when I go out in places like exactly what you're saying, whether it's a coffee shop where it's going to be more, you know, uh, more people around, or even when I'm at a park though, when it's not as maybe crowded, I can still feel all the sweating and the uh, come. And I just have a little chat with myself and say, Sandy, first off, nobody even cares. Second, if they do see you and you tell me, Nishant, if you have had the same experience, I, I find it interesting how, um, what's the word? Like people see us with like this, oh, Oh, what's going on? Like, and they almost really won't approach because when they feel like, I think they feel like they're bothering us or intruding. It feels like this weird air aura around us, this universe of like, they're doing something that I I don't know how to do. I couldn't do. I wouldn't be brave enough to do. Can I go over and talk? Like, they don't know what the rules are. Can I go over and talk? Can I not? I kind of want, you feel them like kind of want to, but then whoa, that person looks really engrossed in what they're doing. You can feel all these like dialogue a little bit and then some feel brave enough to come over. But um, but usually they look in like almost like if there was a TV crew that had been set up and they're like, whoa, what's going on over there? Came to the park, but I didn't know that was going to be going on. So one, I'll have that chat of like, nobody even cares. Or if they do, I'll sometimes I say this to myself in the coffee shop, Sandy. If anybody even notices you doing this, more than likely, nobody in this entire coffee shop can do remotely what you can do. And I don't mean that in a prideful way or arrogant way. It's just the truth. I mean, I'm not even that great of a sketcher when I'm out and about because I am feeling the the pressures until I get into it. Um, But that is the reality that most of them can't do even on my worst day what I'm doing. And that realization of that which sounds maybe puffed up, but it's the opposite. It's bringing myself down to the fact of like, nobody cares. And if they do, they're probably going to be in awe of it. And even if they come over and don't like it and think, that's terrible, Uh, I could do that. They really couldn't do it. They couldn't even do the art and they probably wouldn't have the bravery to do what we're doing out in public. But the majority, I mean, I don't think I've ever even had anybody say negative. I've heard other artists, some of their, that they have had something, oh, a child could do that, which I'd love to talk about that. A child could do that comment. But um, the reality is they're usually like, oh my gosh, that's so good. I can't even do a sick figure. They're in awe of it. And um so I'll just have that quick little chat. Get over yourself. Nobody cares. This is okay. Do you want to know what Grady always tells me too? If he's ever with me, like if we're at an airport or at a restaurant, he'll say, especially if I'm rusty, right? I haven't done it well. He'll say, nobody would notice what you were doing if you weren't acting so suspicious. He said, I'm always just like, he said, you look like a drug addict. I mean, but I'm like that too in the airport before I go through security because I have all these medical devices. I get all nervous. And he's always like, you look like you're carrying drugs because of what you're looking if you would just stop acting so suspicious. And he's like, that's what you look like when you're out too. You're like, <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I think. I think it is interesting. I also think it's very common, Nishant. Don't you think it's a common thing that we feel? And 
usually once we get into it, are you like that too? Once you kind of get into the zone though, it's almost like everything else falls away and it's like, who cares? I am having that dialogue a little more because I've changed. I'm going out and doing landscape a lot more, which I'm not great at yet. And I am so stinking addicted to it and having so much fun with it, but I'm doing sketches. So they're very preliminary. They're very messy. It's capture the whatever. And I know now how these are very useful to me now in the studio. And I am so loving what I'm doing. I hardly have any of that nervousness now because I'm just like, I can't wait to get, I just, so like, let me just get into it. Stuff's flying. And maybe I feel somebody come up behind me now more. I feel like, oh no, are you going to like rob it? You know, because I'm so into it. Like I'm startled. I'm like, oh, somebody's behind me. And they'll be like, oh, I'm sorry. I was just wanting to peek. I'm like, okay, sorry. I just acted like a maniac because I just got scared. I was so into it. But so now I'm just kind of more like, I just cannot get enough of this. Time feels very limited because of bathroom time or something. One of my things with my type one diabetes, I have to drink a lot of water. I'm thirsty a lot. So there's like a time limit because I need to go to the bathroom. I need to be able to get back home to go to the bathroom. And so I just am like, oh, I'm going to enjoy every second and everybody get out of my way. saying that your negative thoughts get out of the way. We got to get to business. That's how I feel now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I resonate with so much of that. Like what you just said, like the moment uh, I have all these, I have all these ideas and thoughts and insecurities running through my mind. But the moment I put pen to paper, it's as if I've got this force field around me now. And now I am, it's just me and the page. That's it. Now it does not matter what the rest of the world thinks. I'm not listening. I'm not, these outside ideas and thoughts are not coming into me. And also what you said about, you know, how people actually regard your work or your the act of you painting or drawing somewhere versus all these stupid ideas running through your own mind. There's so much difference here because I've had, occasions when so i i make it a point now the concept of sneaky art has somehow evolved it's not necessarily me being all hidden and things but the idea is that i'm trying to find art in everyday things so now i pitch it as it's not me who is sneaky it's the art that is sneaky it's right there but you don't see it i am sitting here and i'm watching it and then i see it I still retain this thing that I am inconspicuous to my subjects. I draw a lot of human activity. Primarily, that's what motivates me. I like cities because I love seeing all these strangers doing, just living their lives. It's so wild. And things that I'd have no clue about, about their world, about their their lifestyle. But I can see them and they're part of my world. So I want to draw them. Now, so I'm inconspicuous to them. But I'm not necessarily inconspicuous to people who are next to me In if I'm in a cafe. So sometimes in a park or a cafe or I'm drawing by the water, somebody will approach me and they'll look over my shoulder and invariably they will say nice things because they are not looking at that line that I drew that I wanted to draw another way instead. Like they don't have those imperfections in their mind. They are seeing somebody in the act of making art and just seeing that is something that everyone unanimously appreciates. The fact that you are sitting somewhere and you are giving time to something that is in their world, something they can also look at, but you have chosen to give it an hour or two hours of your time is something that everyone loves and appreciates because 
I think a lot of people wish they could do that or they would do that more with their time. Yeah. And you know why I think they feel like that down? I don't, I don't think that they would probably like be able to avoid this, avoid this, but I think it's because, I mean, all of us have done that as kids. I mean, rarely is a kid not, you know what I mean? So I think there's something innate and childlike that it's like, there's a distant memory of, oh yeah. And so there's kind of like this jealousy of, I wish I could do that now. And so, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons people relate to that. I've got some friends, got one friend in particular that I'm thinking of who paints very childlike. I love her work. And, oh, it's Emily's friend. Um, something, um, I mean, it's Emma's friend, Emily Powell. I don't know if you're familiar with that artist, but, and sometimes she will get, she has gotten comments, I think like, oh, a, a child could do that or that. And her work does look very childlike. I always think it's interesting that somebody wants to say that because I want to say, you know what, you are probably right. A child could do that. But what you're insinuating is that you could do that and you can't because it takes so much practice to do looser stuff. I was looking, I've seen your work too, and I love your style and there is a looseness to it. And, you know, there's not all the details. We're not saying, you know, every eyebrow and I mean, every eyelash and, and it's easier to do the every eyelash kind of thing. It's much harder to take all the information and negate the non-important and still suggest something. And so I think it's interesting when people kind of in a negative way are like, oh, a child could do that. I'm starting, if I get that comment, I feel prepared because I'm going to be like, you are probably right that a child could, but you could not. And that's what you're insinuating. <laughs> you, that, you know, this, this bring. This reminds me of this story I read, and of course, it could be just a fake story, but it's a story attributed to Picasso that somebody approached him in a restaurant and they were like, I'm such a big fan of your work. Could you draw something for me? And so he takes out a napkin and he quickly draws something like it takes him half a minute and he gives it to her and he says, okay, this will be something amount of dollars, like $5,000, maybe something, some number, some wild number. And she says, "Why? but why? It just took you 30 seconds to do it. And he says, no, it took me 50 years to take 30 seconds to do this. Yes. Amen. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I think as artists, we cringe a little bit when somebody wants to know how long it takes because it's kind of like, um, I heard somebody say, so are, are, are you wanting just the time that the paint went down on the canvas or also when I'm walking the dog? And I, what I would say is when I'm falling asleep, because I'm always, it's just always a work, you know, thinking and planning and it is very much a But life. it is part of the, part of the guilt we assume also. I remember when I was very, uh, when I was just starting to do commissions and uh, my particular problem was that I'd come from an engineering background to an art uh, practice. So I was very used to quantifying a lot of things. So thinking that my work or a project is 10 hours of work. So what is 10 hours of work? And then I'm looking at a drawing that I'm selling to someone and I'm thinking, you know, I just spent 45 minutes on it. How much can I possibly charge them for 45 minutes of work? But that's not what it is. So there was this guilt that I was taking on myself that if I draw something in two hours, then I can charge, say, $200 for it. But if I took half an hour to draw it, I should just charge $50 for it. This is the narrative running in my head. And it got defeated when I realized that, hey, if I get better at art, 
I am going to be drawing faster. So does this mean that the better I get, the less I charge? Like it's, <laughs> yeah. this is, uh, am, am I setting up for failure yeah. in some crazy way? And then I realized what you're saying that, you know, all of this part, like, so now I ask people for, when I accept a commission, I ask them for three weeks that this is, uh, don't, don't uh, expect it to reach you faster than this. And it's not that the act of drawing is going to take me three weeks, but the act of everything that is going to lead to that drawing on that day in which it is going to be perfectly made is part of that cycle. Like it, maybe I finish it in one week, but maybe I come to it a little later and then it gets done in a few hours. But the time it takes is very ambiguous. It's not easy to nail it down like this. And so it's very difficult to assign a value to what you do because this is the business part, right? Like as an artist, if you're selling, you want to ascribe a value to your work. Do you have struggle with that idea? Like uh, starting to sell as an artist and you had some time that you've been doing this. How do you ascribe a value to your work? So <clears throat> we decided early on with pricing our work, my work, that we were going to do it by square inch. So we have a size, uh, we have a price per square inch. And as I've gotten bigger and bigger, we go down in price per square inch because it gets ridiculous or um, price per square inch for paper versus price per square inch on canvas. And we've just stuck to that. Now, I'm the world's worst about coming into Grady's office and I'll say so-and-so wants this painting. Maybe we should just charge X. And he's like, yeah, this is what I know. This is a podcast, so people can't see me, but I'm putting my head in my hands. He'll put his head, shake his head. He'll say, Sandy, that's why we have the, we've set up the prices. I'm forever like trying to talk him down. Well, I want to buy two paintings. Should we do this? Or, well, it's so and so. And he's like, no, he's always, and that's another way he supports me. He's like, holds me to, this is what we've, what we've set. And I have a, collectors all over the world now and it is important to stick to the pricing because you devalue work if you don't people have paid a certain amount for this kind of thing and now I'm far enough into it like prices are set and we have to reevaluate every now and then to up the prices and that kind of thing but um but you definitely cannot do it by amount of time that you are pencil to paper or paint to canvas that it just does not work like that. It, I think it doesn't work like that for most creative things. Creativity takes so much time. I mean, there's, there's thinking time, there's working time. It just takes a lot of time. And so I think that's why people are sometimes surprised at the prices of things. If it's a hand carved spoon or whatever, people don't realize the tools that things cost, the amount of time. I mean, it just, it's just a time thing and not just time as far as like maybe daily and weekly, but lifetime of skill and things that go into it. But I do think people early on have a hard time with that and knowing, I feel like there's two camps. There's the people that price their work in redonkulous land and then people that price it way under. And it's pretty hard to, start off and get it right in the the beginning yeah that's a good point so i want to go back in time again let's go back to when you were when you when you started to push yourself to get into this art practice to reject the sense of pride that you had confused as shame and to really start uh, doing a lot of work 
And that initial phase is quite exciting in some ways because every day you seem to get a little bit better. You seem to do something that you hadn't done anywhere, anytime before. So every day is a discovery. Uh, take me on this journey with you. Like what were some of the the mediums that you were exploring then? And what were the inspirations for you? What was making you draw? Whether it was other art, whether it was the world around you, what was compelling you to make art of things? So I started off in watercolor and I still have a major fan base for my watercolor and the way I used to paint in watercolor. And they want me back. And I'm just not going, I just, I can't get back there. I mean, I have people that are like, I'm not buying your whatever. I want, we want the watercolor. My mom's one of those. She's like, well, anytime I even show her paint, she's like, well, I like your watercolor. I'm like, okay. <laughs> Do you want this painting, mom? Well, I like your watercolor. Um, and I love the way you used to paint. But I didn't love the medium. I did it and I got really good in it. And I liked it because it was cheap. Um, I could do it inexpensively I didn't feel precious because it was just paper that kind of stuff but I didn't really love it and I also didn't love that I could do a painting and it was just kind of qu- over quick it was kind of like well I only took like 30 like I wanted to explore more I also used to struggle more with what to paint maybe I wanted to paint but I was like what you know I think in the early days you have to figure out what your subjects are I was painting everything um and everything I didn't really have business to paint. I mean, I just didn't, you know, I, we have early paintings of like Grady that we love to pull out and laugh our stinging heads off. We have one that we call the bee sting because I mean, I was not a figure painter, like at all. I had no training, never really practiced. And I would just draw him. We've got this one, his hand looks like it's stung by like 5 million bees. It's huge. And we call it the bee sting because the first time I ever showed it, he goes, what happened to my hand? I'm like, oh, I didn't even notice that. He's like, it's huge. It's like, also, I was like, I don't know. Um, and I'm so thankful I didn't throw any of my bad paintings away because we love to pull them out and get a huge laugh out of them. And I also love to be able to pull it out to show students or just, you know, I, I remember I, there was somebody I was painting with and they were painting birds and they were like, oh, no, my birds are so fat. I go, oh, no, no, no. Everybody goes through the fat bird stage. Let me pull my birds out that are fat, you know, and it's just fun to be able to see your journey. Um, so I did watercolor and then I tried acrylics for a hot minute and hated them, hated everything about them. And then I learned just enough about oils that I thought I'm going to give it a try because that kind of felt mystical, like mediums. And I just didn't know what to do. And I found one little class and took it and felt like, okay, I think I can do this. I'm going to buy this stuff. And that was my medium, man. I was like hot diggity. I found it. I was so prolific. I got really good at it, found subjects that I really liked and was really, really improving. Uh, My art was, I I just, in fact, I'm having a hard time selling some of those pieces in that season because I just really loved the work and, and I started developing some lung issues. Well, I had some lung issues. I got bronchitis one time and my lungs just never really fully recovered. So I have really bad allergies. It just does not take much to get my lungs in a bad shape. And started developing oil paint allergies, which I don't want to go into a ton because every time I bring this up on my YouTube channel, I get slayed with questions about, oh, it's not the oil paint, it's the mediums. You need to try this. You know, I'm like, if you've watched my channel enough, you know that I've tried everything. Like I, I know it's the um, the oil and the oil paints. I've narrowed it down. I've tried everything, and I've even tried a different kind of oil 
in the paint, a walnut oil, which doesn't mess my lungs up as bad, but it still does. So um, that made me need to explore mediums again, which I'm, which I'm fine with because I'm kind of an explorer. I'm always like, ooh, what is this to I like to dabble in different things. The negative to that when you like multiple mediums is that you grow slower in your skill level. If you've got one medium that you like and one subject, you grow your skill level a lot faster. And I'm very happy for those people that have that. I'm not, and I've just settled on that, the fact that I'm going to grow slower and the fact that I use 500 different mediums. And I'm okay with that. And I like 500 different subjects too. So I found some acrylic paints that were very liquid. And so they didn't dry as fast. I was surprised that the way I was using them looked like my oil paint. You would have a very hard time distinguishing between my oil paints and my acrylic paintings. Because I didn't like how acrylics looked plasticky, everything dried fast. And then in the season, while I was finding acrylics, I was also changing my style. I'd always wanted to be able to paint more from my memory and imagination than just looking at something and painting it. Now, I was painting very loose. I've always been chasing that. And I could do that well. But I wanted to be able to, I don't really know if I could even explain it, Nishant. I just, I wanted to say more in my work than just something I was seeing, which I was chasing that with a loose painting. Which you probably resonate with that. You want to say more than just the details. There's something about the style, right? But I wanted to be able to play more. And so I just was. I was creating. I mean, Nishant, if you look at my sketchbooks in that season, it's one page will be a really beautiful still life. And then the next page is like a tiger body with a man with a mustache pooping spaghetti meatballs. All in one, like weird stuff. I'd, I'd bring Grady in. I'd be like, hey, what do you think about this? He'd be like, what is going on? I'm like, I don't know. I just thought it'd be funny. Like, you know. So I was just playing, and acrylics allowed me to do that, like to kind of just work fast and layer and change things. But then some of that that I changed stayed there. And and I'm not doing as weird. I don't know. Some of my followers may would say, no, it's kind of, it's still getting a little weird there. But, um, I just was having fun and I was feeling all those negative things and judgment and all of that. And what are people going to think started rising? And I just thought, please shut up because I'm having so much fun. And I feel like if I just keep on this journey. It's going to be in me in a good place. Now I would go in my dining room sometimes and see some of my old oil paintings that had gotten to a really high level of beautifulness. <laughs> and I would think, I would have thoughts like this. I wonder where I would be with my level of art if I just kept that journey. And then I would go zip it <laughs> because that's not helpful. That's not where I am. And I don't even, and so, oh, well, this is what I would do. I would either grab my oils or even my acrylics and try to paint like that. Instead of a still life, out in the sun, nice light. That's what I wanted, strong sunlight. And I'd get into it and I would think, I am so bored. I'm not enjoying this. I've been there, done that. I can do this and I'm not enjoying it. I'm like, what's around the corner? The other stuff just felt like calling me. This is the journey. This is where it's fun. This is where you don't have any control. You don't have a clue what's going to come out. And aren't you having so much fun? 
yes, okay. So then I'd like put that away and it's like, okay, let's go, let's go fly. That's what I just felt like. That's what art should be. Like I wanted to chase that and I'm having so much fun with it. And it's been, I don't know, maybe it's affected followers. I don't know. I know it affects getting into galleries. I know there are some aspects of fine art that it affects. And I've decided to like weigh that cost of like, I don't, I don't care. Life's short and I'm making money now with my art and my follower. I'm doing more than making money because of my YouTube. I'm being able to reach people and inspire people and do a lot of things. And it's that same voice that's saying, just trust this, just go with it. You don't need to go the traditional route and those doors may open later, but I'm just doing this and I'm a terrible marketer of myself anyways. I've never been good at marketing. I'm one of these people that I don't have a clue what's going on in the art world or the gallery scene around me or the art thing, Stefan Nash. I'm just terrible. I'm just in here creating like a maniac and I just don't have the time or the patience. People are like, oh, you need to be trying to get into the this gallery and do this. And I'm like, why? Uh, I'll usually in January, I'm like, okay, I'm going to submit to one gallery. And I it's a big work up in my head. I'm not an admin person, but all this stress and blah into it. And then I'm like, okay, I'm done for the year. <laughs> go back in the studio and paint. I'm like, okay, I did it. I didn't get in. Let's just go. Right I, I completely I completely know what you mean. You mentioned that when you're doing uh, lots of different things, like dot, lots of different media, lots of different styles of subjects, you grow a little slower, you said, because uh, growth is typically thought of as going deeply into one specific idea, one kind of medium. And now I'm thinking about what you just said about galleries and YouTube and these you know, we have we have such a plethora of options and uh, possibilities today that the notion of one thing being growth is perhaps no longer valid. So if you if we go back, say, 20, 30 years ago, there's no Internet anymore. And oh, my God, like it's difficult to imagine the world without Internet. Actually, it's kind of strange and bizarre. But now uh the only way you have to grow your audience, to actually even have an audience beyond the people who know you and visit your home is to display in a gallery. There's no other way that you can really show your work to people. And what that leads to is that now you need to do, the only way to reach people is to do the kind of work that galleries want. Not just all galleries, but galleries in the vicinity of where you live. What is the art movement there? What is it that is exciting a curator or a gallery owner in that location, in your geographical proximity? And what kind of pursuit is that? And often that becomes a pursuit that is in the way that you put it going deeper. So you'd have people becoming more and you know better with oils, quote unquote, better, like just more masterful with their paints. And it was always oil and canvas. It's hard like there's a very strict hierarchy, isn't it? Like there's oils and then there's acrylic. Okay, we'll permit acrylics to be art also. Then there's yeah. watercolor, which is like- I with that, actually. When I switched, when I switched, I did struggle with that, like kind of um, what you said, higher and, and the what people think. And I just had to zip that too. I thought, well, it's just not, I can't put my health at risk. And it's just, I'm not even enjoying it. There's been times I've tried to go back and I'm like, I'm just not enjoying it as much. I'm just, oh, well, got to go. 
Right, right, right. And uh, that's, that's sort of what I also sense so many times with my own work, because I'm working with ink. So that's, you know, just a sketch in just a sketchbook. So that's not, you know, that's not finished pieces. It's just what it's a sketch. The word sketch also grates me a little bit because it's like it's less than art or less than a drawing even or a painting. But what we have today is that because of the internet, because of social media platforms and YouTube and things like that, we're able to ourselves reach an audience and we're able to invite them into the world that we have in the work that we do and share that. And in, in doing that, now that the whole world can be your audience, anyone like your subscribers on YouTube can come from different countries and you might not know anything about their world, but there is something they like about what you do. And what that's done is it's changed this notion of what you need to be. There's no singular idea of what you need to be in order to be quote unquote successful. You don't need to pass the standards set by these particular institutions like gallery owners or fine art curators or people in Nashville, Tennessee who think what art is or what is fine art. And because we don't have to meet these standards, we are more free to explore in the way that we want to, in the things that give us joy. So you being uh, motivated by different media and different kinds of subjects and different pursuits that give you joy is something that resonates with so many people. And now you are in the unique position in uh, the chronology of all art history to be able to reach those people wherever they might live. And they are able to reach you and you're able to have this direct relationship with them. So I think they're quite lucky to be to be alive now. Maybe both of us, if we had been trying to be artists in the 19th century, we would have been frustrated by the oils and the requirements, and we would have given up and started to do something else instead. And art would have been something that we just tried and didn't work for us. Mm-hmm. But now we're But lucky. Nishant, there's always in history, if you think of it, there's always been the people that have thought, have gone to like, well, this is what they want, but this is what I'm needing to do. And they've gone that path of following their heart. And now they're like, you know, famous artists. There's so many of those that have just like, this is what I'm creating. There's plenty of the ones too that are like, well, this is what people want and this is what I'm going to do. But the ones that stand out are the ones that um, and but even in my own generation, I can think of people that sometimes when I feel like, oh, should I be doing the subject? Should I be painting this way? And I think, you know what? So and so and so and so they're doing this and then they're doing this wacko stuff over here. If they can do it. I'm So I'll preach that kind of stuff to myself, too. Like if they can do it, I can do it. And even if nobody else did do it, I can still just do it. But um, there's plenty of us out there that are doing all the things, you know, or, or the way that we want to do it. And, and the Sean, I hear, I hear you about the word sketch or sketching, right? But I do think, I don't even know, I was going to say in this day and age, but I'm thinking now to even galleries that I've gone to and seen, you know, works of people that are, are dead they always have the sketchbooks in there and they're always the things that people like, that's the stuff people want to see. Show me the material, show me the, that people lean in that you see them looking at, because it's like, it's like, that's the up close and personal stuff. That's where it's almost like the diary. 
you know, that you get to read and open. And I'm pretty sure my followers and collectors would buy my sketchbooks if they could over my work. They, I have people ask me all the time, sketchbooks for sale? And I always say no. And then if Grady's anywhere nearby, he's like, well, how much? And I'm like, no, they're not for sale. We do want to make them into books at some point, some of them, but there is, it's so much more than just a drawing. You know, you're, you're drawing. So let's use that word, whether you're painting also, but drawing. It's so much more than that, I feel like, in a sketchbook. There's such about, so I think for even the outsider, you know for you, you and I know this because we both are sketchers and use a sketchbook, you can turn to a page and you don't just see the lines and are able to tell that's a building or people. You know the smells and the sound and how that day was going. There's so it's so much more than even just a photograph of you know, if you're on a vacation or something, there is just such memory. And I think it's because we're using all the senses when we do that. And I think people that don't do art and don't have any understanding of all of that, of what you and I feel when we look at our own sketches, there's something that even an outsider senses about that when they're looking through a sketchbook. Don't you think? Like, I, I, I really think so. Like, I feel like this absolutely happens. And I have framed this exactly in the way that you just did, that all our senses are hyper aware at the moment that we are working on sketchbooks. And somehow now my job is to work with a fountain pen with ink. So I am cutting out so much information, like, colors and details everything is being distilled down to this thing but nonetheless it feels like so much stuff that I haven't included is still trapped in those pages every time I open the sketchbook I know if I was listening to a song or if I was listening to a podcast or if I was uncomfortable or if it was hot or cold all of those memories are locked in it and I feel like some of that is communicated to other people but also I feel that when we share a sketchbook it's almost like we're sketching just a part of our day. Like there's no uh, ideas attached to it that it was made in a studio and it was done with a lot of painstaking effort to look perfectly. It was part of my life. And so, and especially in my case, my sketchbooks are of me in the city or in any other outdoor location. I have sketchbooks of my last dozen vacations now. So anybody who sees that kind of sketch also sort of puts themselves in that world and then this is how I rationalize it, that uh, all the things that I don't put in the sketchbook, it's like if I don't have color in my in my sketches and anybody who looks at my sketches, they sort of color it in mentally themselves with colors from their world. And they see the grass and the trees and they're like, this is how trees would be colored. So they're sort of engaging with it and painting it in for me. And I love that aspect of what art can do, like people, and you mentioned, for example, photographs. And I think there's a difference in how people regard an, a painting versus a photograph also the same way about how much they participate with the painting. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree. I agree. Do you have, or um, maybe even family members that are around you, I know early on when I would maybe be on vacation or wherever and Grady would be with me um, early on. He had a real hard time with, you know, to be painting or sketching something. He would be like, well, there's not a tree right there. 
or there's a, and I'm like, babe, I'm an artist. Like I can put whatever, you know, I mean, he was always just like, but there's, the, I'm like, well, that doesn't, you know, I mean, like that just doesn't, I mean, now he doesn't say that he gets it. Like I get to make it whatever I want it to be, but it would really bother me. He'd be like, well, I don't understand. I'm like, don't you get like, I'm getting to create my own little world right here. The trees, everything gets to just move and be what, it, you know, um, but it's interesting for somebody that's not creative. They don't really get that because he's like, but aren't you drawing what you're seeing? And it's like, yes, but I get to recreate it. And yeah, it's it's a bit of a superpower situation. Like yeah. I, I'm, this, I'm, this is my world that I'm creating inside this page. I I remember it took me a lot of time to come to this understanding. I used to, because I am a perfectionist and every day with my drawings, I try to defeat the negative tendencies of perfectionism. So one of the reasons why I use a pen and not a pencil is that I don't, I want to eliminate the option of erasing my lines because otherwise I'll just get in that loop of making it just right, making it just right. And I don't want to be in it. I just want to move forward. And that has involved accepting and embracing mistakes until I used to think of them as mistakes. Now I think of them as me exercising this supernatural power inside my world in that I'm allowed to mess with perspective if I want. This page is a page in which I set the rules and anybody who looks at it is on this trip with me. So if I mess up the perspective, I don't try to be like, can I hide it? I almost lean into it. Like, let's play with perspective a little bit more and see where this goes because none of the rules matter. If I find this tree objectionable, if it's blocking something in my view... Then I'm you're sorry, out, this tree. tree is out. <laughs> you're, you're yeah. Out. <laughs> out. You didn't make so I like, I like being able to play with the page like this. Yeah. And again, now thinking again about sketch versus painting or sketch versus fine art, this notion of, you know, one thing being art and one thing being less is also about, and it's being uh, eroded slowly. Like people don't subscribe to that. idea. Certainly the new generation doesn't subscribe to that idea because People are now digital natives. So the first time they look at your work is probably through a screen, not through, not in person. So that experience of the, just the, the experience of looking at art is not confined to galleries and museums. So I remember you mentioned uh, looking at the sketchbooks of artists before. I remember I was in this museum in Europe when I used to live there and I was just walking around and I saw the sketch, a 16th or 17th century sketchbook of some artist. And I thought, of course they had sketchbooks. Like this is the first time it occurred to me that they have sketchbooks. And of course they do this. Like this just makes sense. It didn't occur to me, but that sketchbook was not something they could have shared with other people because the experience of looking at art at that time was galleries and it was a framed piece on canvas. That was the convention. So a sketchbook had this place which was inferior to a finished piece. But today, because everything is mediated through screens and everything is, uh, because of the screens, everything it can be in all these multiple forms. So you make art Sometimes you're sharing the process of making art. You're making a video around it. And let's talk about your YouTube channel now. What's interesting is, and this is a thought that's been in my mind since a few conversations with previous guests, that the final product that people see of your work now is not necessarily the painting on the canvas, but it's either a picture of the painting on the canvas. So it's about how you took that picture 
or it is a video of you actually making that painting. So it's not even necessarily that they spend half an hour looking at the finished piece, but they spend half an hour following a video with a narrative showing the different stages of completion of that piece and the ideas that you had. So in a sense, those are the products now and not necessarily the finished piece. How do you, how do you feel about that? Like now that you're, you're putting your work out in all these different formats, like there's video, there's image, there's the audio component as well. So um, I think maybe my answer isn't probably exactly what you're asking, but I am not technically skilled. I'm not a photo- good photographer. All like my Instagram posts, I wish they were better. I wish I could take better photographs of my paintings. I'm learning little bits and doing the best that I can. And that could stop me, but I'm just kind of like, this is the best I have to offer. Like I don't have a well curated feed. I haven't really even aimed for that though. I, I do want everything that I put out there to feel relatable. And I mean, I would like better pictures. My main thing is I want, if a collector is going to buy a work, I hope that they're always saying, oh, this looks better than in person. I mean, I I try to make the work not look at the best for Instagram. I want the work to look as close as I can to the original that I can. I don't make it better looking. But then for like YouTube, I realized early on, not only am I not technically skilled, but I realized like everything wasn't going to line up for me. Like the studio's not neat. The painting's not going good. The hair looks like I stuck my finger in a light socket. Like I just kind of thought if I'm going to do this, it's just going to have to be here it is. Because my ceiling is kind of low, Nishant, because of my health issues. Um, so it was a little bit like, I don't have the energy to not, to make myself look great, to make the studio look great, to make sure I'm filming on a day where the weather's good and the sound and the lighting in the studio and the painting's going good. That's a lot. Like that's not going to be my output of what I have. It's going to be, this is what you got. (laughs) I'm doing the best that I can. I got the camera turned on. We're going in a good start folks. So. And I have, you know, I don't know. I'm just usually looking back at footage kind of being like, Sandy, I mean, did you even look in the mirror for five seconds? Like that could help. Um, Could you make sure the settings on the camera are, I mean, there's just, so I started the channel because I am very visually inspired. I found that there were certain types of videos. I'm not a, I'm not a, um, it's probably the way I'm wired up. I think I have some, probably some kind of learning disorder that was never realized as a child, but I don't, I don't love, like, I don't have a long attention span. Don't give me an overhead video of like beginning to end kind of process. Um, and snooze coma world five seconds in. I mean, I just need, I want like, give me the inspo, show me the paint going across the page and the, like, I just need a little. And then I'm like, oh, off to the races. Like, let me go paint. And I'm also a teacher at heart. I love teaching. More than teaching, though, I'm somebody that's wired up where if I have something I'm excited about, I have to share it. Kind of like, you know, if you go to a good restaurant and you have to tell so-and-so about it because they're going to love that Chinese restaurant, too. Like, it feels like it's not complete until you've shared it. 
So I am wired up that way. And I started realizing how much videos, certain types of videos were really inspiring to me and fed me creative, 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 creatively. There we go. Got it out. So I started thinking, well, I wonder if I could do that. I mean, I think I first was mainly wondering, technically, can I even pull this off? Because I barely know how to turn my computer on, much less do everything it takes to do a YouTube channel. So I kind of started it like everything else. Well, I'll just see if I can get my computer turned on. (laughs) Can I even find on YouTube where to start being, you know, I just kind of take things like, well, let me just see if I can figure this out. And then I would and be like, okay, well, let's see if I can do this. So I started doing that, hoping that I could inspire. I always got stuff to share. I'm somebody who's constantly learning and trying new things. My painting style is always changing. I'm never going to run out of something to share. I'm just one of those people. I'm not doing the same old, same old. In fact, I used to get where I would save stuff. I would think, well, maybe I need to save this to share on Instagram tomorrow because what if I don't have something for the next few? And then I started realizing I have got so much stuff. Like I cannot wait. Like I just need to put it out there because I mean, even for YouTube, I could probably, if I could edit faster, and if my shoulder wouldn't give me problems, um, put out a video every day. Like I've had to push pause on filming because I just am creating a lot and I have a lot to share. So I also, Grady and I love to laugh. So I would watch this footage back and be like, what is going on? Are you having a seizure? Like, what are you, why are you saying that? And so I'd be in there just horse laughing and I'd be like, oh, we're saving this. And then, you know, I love doing writing, making fun of myself. Like, I'm like, if I can get, I barely have a brain also. And now people always say, people that don't like first know me, they're like, oh, you have a brain. I'm like, no, really you don't. People, my friends that are like, want their, has become my friends longer. And they're like, well, we're, maybe we're kind of forming up to the fact that you don't have much of a brain. And that's fine. God, has created me without a brain. I have other gifts, but I do not have much of a brain. And what that equates to is a lot of laughter. I give Grady and uh, we get a lot of laughter because of little baby brain. People kind of get onto me on YouTube. Oh, you don't need to say that. And that's degrading. I'm like, no, it's one, it's true. And I used to feel growing up, I was really insecure about it. Um, I realized I couldn't read this fast. I, I'm So I'm pretty sure there's probably some kind of learning disorder or something. And I used to feel really, really insecure about it. And then sometime in my life and in my faith, it was just kind of like, this is how God's wired me. And I'm okay with that. I'm not going to be the brain surgeon. I'm not going to be the doctor, but I have other gifts and skills. And then I was really able to be freed up and just kind of laugh over it and not feel insecure and try to hide those things. I mean, like I'll be over there adding up like seven plus six on my fingers and Grady will be like, uh, did you really need to use your fingers? I'm like, yeah, I really did. It was necessary. And he's like, okay. Yeah. So, so I don't know. So now we just, I just make fun. You know, I just like, we love to laugh about it. So, and I feel like life felt a lot freer when it was kind of, when I just embraced it. This is who I am and I'm not ashamed of it. In fact, let's all just embrace it and have a real good laugh because We've got plenty here. So with the videos and stuff, like I said, it's like you're not real conscious. Oh, okay. So I would be doing the videos early on and Grady always watches them before I upload them. And early on, I was kind of like, oh, I thought I thought that, 
you would laugh more. Like, I thought this was really funny. And he started saying to me, hey, babe. So like, this is the first time you're getting to see this. Like, I live with this. This is not anything new to me. Like, you're finally getting in on what I'm seeing all the time. And I mean, he still does laugh a lot about it. But even my mom would be like, no, why are you not editing that out? I'm like, because that's the good stuff. Like, that's the stuff that we're all laughing about. So that was part of it, too, that felt like a real joy for me to be able to make people laugh and just have a message of, could we please not take ourselves too serious? Like, this is me. I'm embracing it. And it is interesting to me how people try to scold me for it for certain things like, oh, you need to stop saying that about your hair. You have pretty hair. And I'm like, like, let's let no, I'm trying. This is, I'm not putting myself down. I think people think, oh, you're putting yourself down. I'm like, no, I'm just having fun with myself. Like this is what it is. And, and I'm, I'm not taking myself too serious. So you don't have to either. You don't need to rescue me from that. So I wanted to do all that with the channel. I wanted to inspire, give laughs. And mainly though, I wanted to give people a being like a little fly on the wall of my studio to see what it looked like to be a real artist. I wanted very much for them to see all the bad work. I wanted to help them see, I'm doing C in quotation marks, what it looks to process and think and how to do it well and what it looks like to not do it well. When it's like, okay, let's, let's fight back from that. You know, let's, let's knock those thoughts down and, and I do feel like with my channel, I've been able to do that. Um, I have felt at times discouraged with how slow growing my channel is because I do feel like it's good. I really, it's one of the things I'm really proud of. I'm proud of my work. I'm proud of the channel and the times that I've gotten frustrated with it and think, because I often have people say, I don't know how you don't have way more viewers than this. And I'm usually kind of like, I know sometimes I feel like that too. But I've also just gone back again, back to my faith and being believing that the Lord is in, in control of all this. And one of the ways that I think that he's protected me in, in this slow growth is it's really helped me get my feet under me. It's helped me kind of slowly get into things because I get asked to do a lot now. Like it's been ramping up for a year or two. And um, also all the comments, I respond to everybody that's starting to kind of dwindle. I mean, I'm getting to a place where it's getting harder to do. So things haven't felt too overwhelming. And that's one of the things too. So when things feel frustrating, I just go, no, just trust what God's doing in your life. And this journey, this is where it is. It's also pressing back into contentment. And looking for and embracing the things that I do get to do now and not just reaching for like what you said, oh, this goal, it'll be, I'll be happy here, or this is what it needs to be. And I'm like, no, I do want to just enjoy where it is right now. And, um, and when it's something else at some point, there's going to be negative things that come with that and there'll be positives too, but. So I hope that didn't sound arrogant. I sure don't want to say, because it's not, it's just, I think we can all, don't we all feel like that a little bit with social media stuff? We can Absol- you're, you're absolutely right. And you know, uh, fear of sounding arrogance is also something I relate with because a bit of uh, not getting what people think and just staying centered on yourself is also such an important uh, part of self-preservation in order to be an artist. Like the act of showing people what you see is such a, like, sometimes this is what I'm thinking that it's so arrogant to just 
try to show people what you see like hey look at what i'm looking at or look at it this way that i'm looking at it don't is isn't it beautiful don't you think it's great like just that act is such an arrogant thing like who am i to, like what why why should like why don't i just zip it and you know like just be like everyone like what is what business do i have showing people things my way and even that in itself like there is a kernel of what could be called arrogance in that but i feel like there is to some extent we need something like a protective layer in order to really get to the depths of how we want to show things and to be really authentic and honest and earnest the way that you are on your youtube channel like i wanted to uh, make sure i didn't miss that like when you say that you're showing people your process you're really showing people your process like it's not just a time lapse like i'm thinking about this video that you did in which uh, you are recording outside and it's about to rain or it just starts to rain in the middle and part of the video is you deciding to run away from the rain and then trying to come out again and then you know it's not working and looking at your piece later and then really in real time thinking out loud how you're going to pivot around it how you're going to deal with what's happened to the page and i feel like that is a level of uh honesty is one way to put it but that is a level of insight that a lot of people are afraid to give like this is me at my nervous point or this is me being unsure so certainly i have it for example one of the reasons why i'm very hesitant to make videos of myself is that i feel very nervous about putting myself out there in the sense that here is me trying to figure something out and i don't know what i'm going to say next and you're going to see it and that thing makes me very nervous and it feels like i need i look but at why? channels like why do you think nishant why do you think do you know why it makes you nervous cuz is it do you think the root is that people will judge you yeah i think the the expectation that people will judge you and that they will judge you unkindly is at the root of this so i've thought a long time about it like even this act of having a podcast when it started was very nerve-wracking for me just who am i to say something and then be like hey you should listen to this it's a fun conversation like it's just it's just me what is it like who am i to do this so and i would finish the episode and of course just like with drawing the moment it begins you get into the zone like i start talking and then i'm not thinking about other people i'm just thinking about the person i'm speaking with and about what a great uh, enriching conversation we have but afterwards once it was done i would start to edit the episode and i would listen to my own voice and i would just get so irritated by myself that like oh, i just like who am i to talk like what what business do i have saying all these words and i feel like it's the same challenge with video and i intend to take on video content like i really want to do it because there's so much to share but i feel i will have that same hump to climb over of getting like almost like these obstacles are of my own construction and so now when you talk about you know having your own youtube channel and then deciding to deciding to have your own youtube channel and then putting out these videos and making these videos i'm curious to know about about these what were the obstacles that you faced and how did you come out with the solutions for them okay okay come back to that question cuz i want to say something first to what you said honestly so Let's take the example. Well, let me first say this and then we'll take an example. I think we don't doubt ourselves enough. So, it kind of goes back to that self-worship. 
we just take what we're saying up here as it has to be true and it and it and it's so big and like consuming right so let's take the example of the podcast and you listening back and being like uh, and all the the things right or who's going to listen why would anybody want to listen to this if we can look back over our lives enough to be able to realize like i really need to doubt myself because nobody's really hearing me in that way. I know with podcasts too, like I get so frustrated. I don't complete sentences. And I know that Grady's always told me that. But when I started filming myself I, and then listening to podcasts that I've been on, I'm like, why can't I finish a sentence? And I'm working on that. But other people like family members and friends. And I'm like, oh, it's so frustrating that I didn't complete a sentence. They're like, we didn't notice that at all. And I start realize, you know, you can just look back a lot enough at life and go, I don't see myself clearly. I'm going to doubt myself on this, that maybe actually I do have something to share. Maybe actually people do want to hear this podcast. Maybe this conversation is actually worth and other people want to hear it. But, but the weight we give to our own, like, and, and so I think one of the keys is you can feel the, the, like before, there's a point where you felt the inflation, you know what I mean? But when we can start feeling that deflation, I think we should start having red flags come up and think, maybe I don't, maybe I need to doubt this a little bit, not put so much weight into what I'm thinking. The other thing is, whether it's podcast, whether it's art, whether you're a, you are a cook, a gardener, you a wood carver, somebody that's creative. I think it's innate in us to share it. I think, I don't know. I, I feel like it completes the circle. There's something about creating something which is wonderful and fun in the act of creating, but then to be able to share it with someone else, it just makes the whole thing complete. And, and it's almost lacking if we don't. Now, not that everything that we do and create has to be shared, but there is something, I think, in humans, and I think it's part of the humanness, right? Not the isolate. We're meant to be in community. And I do think God created us in that way to be part of one another's life. And there is something about creating that is so much part of us as a creator that we've then put into, and again, you can kind of see this in God creating earth and the, you know, the world, there is something you put so much into it. And then for others to be able to enjoy that, there's almost like a sigh relief. There's kind of like this, okay, that, and I do think then that's where the closed fist and holding it too tight comes in because there's, too much identity put into it and too much of the fear of them. What if they don't accept it? I love sharing stuff with Grady that I know he's not going to love because my identity, I know that his love for me is not wrapped up in if I'm going to make art that he loves and would want over the fireplace. But he's able to enjoy it because he knows the creator. He knows the time that I put in it. He knows that I've been into the office 15 times going, oh my gosh, I'm having so much fun in there. I'm just dying. And he'll kind of nod and go, good, I'm glad. And then later I'm like, get in here and come see this. And he's like, well, okay, that's interesting or whatever. You know what I mean? But he still enjoys it because he knows I'm in there like a giddy kid. 
So as creators, when we want to hold back because we're too fearful of the response, and isn't that the same thing when we're out in public and doing all that? There's this fear of the response. But if we could doubt ourselves, learn to doubt ourselves more, that what we're saying to ourselves really is more wrapped up in a lie because really everybody in the coffee shop, but maybe one person who's got a chip on their shoulder anyways and is a curmudgeon is going to like what they're seeing. Yeah, yeah. And so true. Like <laughs> it it keeps coming back to me that there are things you need to do, but you need to do them in the right place. So there is a time to be uh, very sure of yourself. But there are times when there are aspects in which it is wrong to be too sure of yourself. And the same way you say, you know, we should doubt ourselves more. And at the face of it, that comes off as such a wrong thing to say, no, we shouldn't doubt ourselves. Someone would answer out of context. But there, are, there is a space where you do need to, you need to doubt those voices in your head that tell you that, that that you're not that you might not be good so you shouldn't do something because you're quote unquote not good enough or that you matter you matter so much that you have to put out perfect content otherwise it's not worth doing so uh the same way like there is the sense of like uh, there's a dichotomous uh, idea of even that uh being prideful like there is an aspect in which you need that pride because you need to power yourself through something that is completely self-motivated there's no fuel in this engine except what you put in yourself nobody as such and i i think this is well you're also a self-taught artist self-taught in quotation marks because nobody is really self-taught we all take from our world so much but you're a self-motivated artist and you didn't have an explicit reason to be an artist is how I'm putting it because this is how I've thought about it myself. I had a whole career and uh, I wanted a completely different creative career and none of it had art in it. Like there was no idea of art in it. But the day that it struck me that this is what I want, I started to move with deliberate steps towards it. I decided to be an artist and every day, therefore, not every day, well, but regularly, therefore, I think about why am I making art? Why am I drawing this scene? Why do I have a sketchbook? What is the point of this? And this is something that I try to answer for myself. And it's part of the positive narrative in my mind. So I come across various obstacles of, is it worth showing? Is it good enough? Should I record myself on a podcast? Is Should I hit that publish button? And I come to more deliberate answers for me wanting to do this. None of it is simply meant to be. It's just that I want to do it. I really want to do it. So I'm going to put this podcast on the air and I'm not going to care about other people and I'm not going to care about myself coming in my own way and saying, hey, don't maybe share this because who are you to share your opinion? So I want to come back to my question, which was, what are some of the obstacles that you faced that you sort of had to you know, argue yourself out of with respect to YouTube? Because you know, sharing our work is still like, there's, there's a shield. You look at my work, you don't look at me, although your work also reveals you in such uh, intimate ways. But YouTube, you're really putting your personhood in front of people. So what were some obstacles you faced and how did you sort of deal with them? I think my main obstacles were technical stuff. I'm just not technical. I still struggle with it. Um, It feels like life comes to a halt when my hard drive is full or the computer. I mean, I'm just kind of like, I don't know what to do. And it feels because I'm just, it's just not my world. 
is becoming my world. I'm learning a lot and getting more confident in it and getting good sources of people to ask and things like that. But definitely the technical aspect of it. And so the technical, but also things like the frustration that maybe my footage isn't as good because I don't know how to work the camera as good. And I just need to put it on auto or photographs that I'm taking. And I'm constantly trying to learn, but definitely the, so definitely the technical, I'm starting to get some obstacles now that I'm developing some shoulder issues because of the same movements that I'm doing. Um, Probably early on, I had to get over, you do have some nervousness with it at first. Uh, Not as much as what I thought, because I do, one, talk to myself a lot in the studio as it is. Grady will often come in and be like, who are you talking to? I'm like, oh, I don't, I guess myself. (laughs) And he's like, there's a full on conversation going on. Same. Um, I'm so glad for, on a separate mention, I'm so glad for face masks outdoors because now nobody sees me muttering to myself. Oh, and I'm such a, like, I wear my emotions on my, so I can't even imagine when I'm out, like in nature doing something. I'm quite, and when I feel like there's not maybe, because I'm quite sure I'm like, oh my gosh, this is, I mean, I just am pretty like expressive and I'm sure I look like full on crazy woman. Maybe that's why I'm getting some of the looks that I'm getting. Maybe it's not, oh, she's doing art. Maybe it's like, cause I probably look halfway homeless too. So they're probably like, is this homeless crazy woman or is this? artist we can't tell um yeah um I mean I feel like I've been on it for so long I can't even remember what some of my early things were I think mainly just technical um tell me about about this technical uh problems though how did you how did you pull yourself out of it like did you take inspiration from other YouTube channels to you know pick up tricks and to get ideas about what are good ways to show your work or show process no I'm 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 somebody even in my art that doesn't really look, I just kind of have my head down. I mean, there were definitely YouTubers that I've watched and that have way better channels and camera editing and all that than me. I am, definitely the filter is I want to create work, like when I say work, like videos in the way that I would want to watch them. So I need to be able to enjoy the editing process. And I did some videos early on that were like overhead shots, more tutorial. And I was in a coma editing. I mean, it was just like, when is this going to be done? I wasn't saying anything stupid or funny. I mean, in fact, I'll have a video now that I'm like, well, before, like I'll let Grady watch it before. And I'll tell him, I'll say, well, it's not a very good one. And then we'll get to the end. He was like, that was a great video. And then I said, well, we didn't laugh once. There wasn't anything stupid that I said. And now I'm like equating. I feel like I equate, like, we don't have anything ridiculous that I said or did. And it's not like funny. Um, Cause I just like to laugh. So I started realizing like, I can't do this type of video. People want instructional videos from me. And I'm just like, sorry, people. That's, it's just not my style. I don't have fun edit, um, filming them. I don't have fun editing them. I found that the way it worked best for me was just to pick up the camera, just like if a friend, you know, if Grady's in here and the way I would like run and want to grab him and show him something, pick up the camera. It's like, oh, I'm excited about this. Or this is going really bad. I need to show the people, you know, I mean, like this, they need to see where this is going because, because I am committed to that. So, um, and then there are days that I just have to go, nope. 
cameras need to not be picked up. I don't need to feel like I need to show them this. I kind of just need a paint day and get out of my own head or not be interrupted with the moving of the camera because it is, it can be a creative zapper because it breaks up the flow of creating in a major way. It takes a ton of time. People would not realize how much time editing, not filming. Filming does take a while, but I spend the majority of my week editing. I mean, and I have friends that will say, well, how long? And I'm like, you know this, as a creative, time just, I mean, I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, work just sort of expands to fill whatever amount of time you have. I mean, what my response is a redonkulous amount of time. I don't know how long, but most of my week is editing. And it doesn't sometimes feel like it should equate, but people are like, well, are you getting paid that much? And like, well, it's not all about the money. There is a bit of, I chose this route to market myself. So it is a way to be able to get out there. I didn't go the gallery route or other routes. This felt like a way that could be in my own control with doing more than just marketing myself. That was, that's a sliver of the pie, but there were so many other great slivers that it made it worth triumphing over the technical stuff that I have to deal with. And Nishant, I really was surprised because I'm so not technical. I couldn't believe how much I loved editing. And I can't say I love it as much now. I think. It, I th- maybe because I'm having a shoulder pain. I don't know. But what I do, I loved the storytelling. I love a good story. I like to tell stories. And I realized that I got to tell a story with this, with the way I edited, made fun of myself or did whatever. Like, so I, each week I'm getting to create in a different way. And what I also found this was also hugely surprising to me because of the amount of time editing takes. I don't know really how this equates and works out, but because I'm using a different side of my brain, I think with creating with the editing, it's like it gives my painting part of my brain rest while inspiring myself. And then my painting gives me a break from the other. They just go together. And then it also... I don't know how this works, Nishant, but I'm spending so much time editing, but I'm painting like a maniac. I'm creating work more than I ever have. I'm like a creating maniac. And I don't know. I'm like, how is this possible? Because I'm spending so much time editing, but they both fuel each other. And it's been a beautiful marriage for me. And I can't imagine because Grady's talked about, do we need to hire somebody to edit to be able to allow you more painting time? Because I don't feel like I'm getting as much painting time as I'd like. And I'm getting the shoulder issue. And so we've had conversations about it. But he's like, y- your personality is so much into the editing. Like the videos would not be the same. And they're fueling your work so much. And I'm like, yeah, I can't even imagine not having that in my life. And it gives my weak structure somehow. Do you find that in your work at all with the podcast and all that, Nishant? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, two points. So firstly, editing is creative work also, because like you mentioned, it's storytelling and you, you've you changed the tools somewhat. You've got your audio, you've got the video, you've got these different camera footage, and now you are crafting them into something. So there's a lot of uh, fun, creative challenges there. And once you kind of get into the flow, like flow firstly requires you to have a sense of what you want to do. 
like what is fun for you once you've sort of hit on that that this is what i like doing this is how i like saying things and i love it when it comes out so in so and so way then it's a nice challenge like i like i like these kind of creative challenges that you know if i get if i do this 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 in so and so way then i'll get this kick out of it and once i once that structure is in my mind then it's always fun to get into it even if it's you know it's other work than you know purely making art and uh, you also mentioned that they kind of feed into each other and i absolutely agree with that although i have uh, uh, described it previously in a negative not negative way but in a different in a different like a mirror image of it so i call it creative procrastination um i procrastinate on one uh, job by doing the other and then i procrastinate on that one by doing the for the first and i find that this way i get both done yeah yes yes i and i'm finding that it gives me structure because i know i've got to get the video done that week so i start my week off with that or the day off especially like monday and then when my body's hurting too much from sitting i'm able to get up and paint and that gives me a rest mentally from the so there is kind of that um and you need a you need a bit of space from both of these things like I think sometimes you need to zoom out of your art and maybe the editing process allows you to think a little bit about your audience and so the podcast for example when I'm editing it or uh, when I'm making other uh, Instagram stories and things like that at that moment I'm thinking about my audience for a little bit about how they're going to see it and then that helps me to put my work in context like I get a little bit out of my own head and that's use it's it's useful in little chunks like we can't be so self absorbed that we forget like you meant like i i loved this quote you said that sharing sort of completes the circle of creation so it's almost i i take it as part of my job to share effectively that's going to really give me the kick of cre- like it's part of getting the kick of creation to share it in a way that people fully appreciate what i did and that's all like simply creating it is not the end of my work yeah but does that ever feel frustrating because i feel like i don't have great skills to be able to share in the way that i wish it looked and even just the time like you and i both know it takes a lot of time to share stuff and there's some things that i will take more time like i'm pretty sure people would be surprised at how much time i take to film stories and sometimes edit or put them up i mean it's not a lot, but probably more than maybe most because I'll do it with my phone a lot of times because I get better quality and things like that. But, um, but I can feel frustrated. I could feel frustrated at this. I often have this thought, like, this is the best I have to offer, you know, and I, I holding think, up I my think hands it, like here, but I wish it was better. But I, I think at the end, it's always like that. I think at the end, you just have to sort of, uh, cut, cut the cord and be like okay it's just it's what it is but i think this this struggle of frustration is so much like what we were just talking about the struggle of uh, people who are making art and then they don't find it good enough as compared to the idea in their minds and the solution is also in the same practice right like you and i have both come to this understanding that you have to center the joy and the contentment and then the final product can be something not exactly what you had in mind but as long as the the process is what you enjoy the output is good and sometimes i feel like that's 
I, I, I sort of naturally get that with my art, but I don't get it with some other creative pursuits. And I have to tell myself that just like how you're an artist, it's just like that. It's the same thing. You're just now, now you're, now you're using words and it's a podcast, but it's the same thing. Just enjoy the process. And sort of with stories, it's the same thing that just, just have fun with it. Maybe this is not the kind of story that you want to make because it's not fun to make, even though others are doing it successfully. Maybe like, and you're, you're being self, you're being critical about your videos. And I look at your videos, for example, and think, why am I not making videos like that? That this is exactly what I need to do and not think about. So I, it's interesting to hear you say that, you know, you are thinking about how your hair is a mess when you're on the video, because I'm looking at it and I'm not thinking that I'm thinking, wow, she does not think about like, it's not relevant to me how her hair is instead when I look at her video, I feel that why do I think so much about myself? Like, why do I obsess over these things? What a great experience it is to watch Sandy's videos. And for me to think that my appearance is so critical to making a nice YouTube video that people will enjoy is so wrong because I'm getting so much joy from watching Sandy's videos and she's laughing and she doesn't hesitate to, she doesn't hesitate to break into laughter. So I have this I'm sense. I'm so glad, Nishant. That is so stinking encouraging to me because I really want that to come through. I want that to be one of my undercurrent messages. Could we just get over ourselves a little? Could we just enjoy life? We're in such a society of perfectionism and only showing the perfect. And people in my life and even other YouTubers or things that kind of ministered to me the most. One of my best friends, um, She's been doing YouTube for a long time. She's uh, very sick. She has um, medical, major medical, sickest person I know and has the most joy of anybody I know either. And I've learned a lot of being freed up by her. And again, my, here comes how my medical stuff has helped me be freed up on YouTube. So I have medical devices. In fact, you can see one sticking on my arm here in our video. Um, I have two of them and one of them is quite big. And when I first had to get these medical devices, this kind of goes back into that self-worship and the way we put ourselves too high. I was always trying to hide those with my clothing and which isn't great because I need to be able to rotate them. And sometimes they needed to be in places. And at some point I just got to this thought of this is who I am. Like I have medical issues and p other people that had these same devices that weren't ashamed to wear them. I thought, I kind of wish I had some, that much freedom. And I, at one point I just thought, this is who I am a little bit. Like I'm not really smart. I don't have a good, I don't have a brain. <laughs> um, and I kind of thought, well, this is just what it, what I, who I am and that's okay. And I'm just going to get over myself and just let those medical devices show um, and hope that it doesn't like make somebody uncomfortable. I don't think that that's usually been the case. Sometimes I am a little private back when I had to give myself shots and things like that. If I would be at a restaurant, I'd be, I'd have people say, Oh, just who cares? You've got to do this to live. And I would think, well, I want to be thoughtful of others. Some people are woozy of those things and I don't want to make, so I'm thoughtful like that. But when it comes to what people think about me, I knew that that's what was at the heart of that. And I thought, I just can't live my life like this. These medical devices need to be seen. And it's just if they're poking out. And I had to decide that too with YouTube. At first, I thought, oh, I don't want 
you know, I didn't know if I wanted that part of my life to be shown. And I don't talk about it a lot, my, my health issues, but I do some. And it's interesting how much it resonates with people that are sick and how many people I hear from that are like, I've been in, you know, I'm homebound or I'm bedbound and I used to be in art and I haven't done it anymore. And you've stirred that up in me and encouraged me to do it. And so even on my YouTube videos, I've just decided to let my medical devices be seen and not try to edit those out. It's just who I am. And life's too short to be something other than I am. And I've realized that those things do minister to other people and say something without having to say something and free people up in a way. Um, in this perfect beauty driven world. And the reality is there's just not a lot of people out there that are in that beauty. Perfect. You know, we're always trying to hide all the imperfections and, um, and we're all faking in a sense to try to live up to a standard that we think everybody else has, but nobody has. And everybody's trying to collectively fake it in a sense. And I don't, those life decisions of even just that have nothing to do with art and my creative practice, but just a day deciding I'm not going to try to hide my medical devices anymore. This is who I am. I have this disease and so be it. Um, Have fed into my art practice because that has helped me build the big muscles of forgetting self, not worshiping self, not being so tied up in what people think. Because all that is, is a worship of self. And when we are so consumed with that, we don't think of others much. We're so self. That's what I'm talking to about when I say pride. There's this, just this self-worship that's all about me. And nobody else is thinking that much about me. All they're doing, because they're caught up in pride too, is thinking about them and what I think about them. And all I'm doing is thinking about me. And all of that falls into my creative process. And because I'm sifting those things and thinking about those things in real life, not only with my medical stuff, but I also do a lot of counseling with my church and stuff. I walk with women going through really hard stuff. And so I'm constantly helping them think how, about how they're thinking. And that, so that has played in so much into my art practice of life is short. This is just what it is. And I'm going to enjoy it. And, um, and I do think it's been coming out from what I hear back from my audience. It does show and it has been ministering. And that is so encouraging. And so it fe- feeds my and fuels me being like Sandy pressed back against perfectionism. Just let life be what it is. I mean, sometimes when I look in the background, I'm like, do you see how much medical stuff is on the desk? I mean, I'm just like, could you not have put your glucose tabs and your medical device, like just straighten the desk? And it's like, no, I don't have the capacity for that because by the time I do all that, I'm too tired. Let let me answer that question for you right now. I have never noticed those things because I'm just captivated by the things you're doing. So if that has ever been a problem for you, then please don't let it be one anymore. Okay. Because certainly I'm sure nobody notices them at all. People, you're exactly right. Everybody is taking from it. Everybody's in their own trips. Like everybody's on their own, in their own world. And they're they're extracting information. They're looking for useful things. Like when I would take pictures of my drawings to put on uh, Instagram, I would be so paranoid about not having stray things on the side. And, oh, there's a bit of my laptop you can see. You should not have to see that. And it's so it's so absurd and it's so counterproductive. It's just part of this pointless stress that keeps adding to us. 
sometimes i think you know that maybe it's a problem of our generation because we're not digital natives it's just it's a new medium that's come into our lives and now we're trying to uh think about our image on this medium so i think i i look back at previous generation so my parents generation and my grandparents when they would start to uh, send messages they would address them like letters they would say dear so and so yours blah 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 and i would laugh at them about hey, you don't need to do that on a message you can just say what you want to say and then that's it you don't have yeah. to sign out yeah, you don't so have to sign though. in that's so cute but that's how i think of videos like i need to be dressed properly and i need to be you know the color and the light and things need to be. and then i think I, i i'm on tiktok these days because i'm trying to see how artists uh, talk about their work on tiktok and you get exposed to a younger generation of people who are digital natives like they grew up with screens around them and they are so comfortable sharing themselves on video without uh, this burden of perfectionism so many people are so comfortable just sharing their world sharing their lives that uh, there's 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 a lot of inspiration to take from that so many of our burdens are generational burdens and sometimes we take good advice from people before us but sometimes it's people after us who give us permission and this word is so important to me like they give us permission to be free and to do things but let's also i don't want to ch- let's also acknowledge this and it's it's definitely goes into the camp of thinking rightly like there's definitely a place to grow and to improve and to sharpen our skills and i'm doing that across all the board right with my filming with my camera work with lighting um editing but um i think because my ceiling is low that i also realize if perfectionism comes in it's not going to get done so i do I do things to the best of my ability for that day or whatever and I'm not going to wait until I have the money for the best camera or uh I mean we're never going to wait nothing will ever get done if we wait for my hair to be you know good or the house to be clean you know what I mean like that if if nothing that's going to be eternity um so I don't want to give the impression there's definitely I'm always wanting to grow in my work but I ask different questions. It's not what are people what do people want? What are going to people like? Never for me is the question will this sell? Will people buy this? Never. I am not going to ever let that be the director of my path. Um So there are questions there there are good questions though of I think there's just the right questions right there it's the right kind of growth it's not what will people want those are it's not the that's not the fuel but when it comes down to just sharpening things at a pace that maybe I can then I do you know I think one of the things though that also helps me is that I'm not so I'm not business minded either I'm not a good marketer of myself or business minded. So in one way that's helpful because I don't have all the voices in my head. And another way it's not helpful because I'm not maybe getting all the knowledge and help that I could. So I'm not on Instagram a ton. I usually see maybe the first or second post on my I'm just not on there. I don't have the time. I'm in there creating. I also don't do a lot of like YouTube or Skillshare like business or how to grow. I'm just that's I'm not wired that way. 
It bores me. If I need to know how to figure out something, I'll do some research, get what I need and go. Um, I have had people say, you know, you need to get your goals together for the year. You need to get a purpose step. You do. And I'm just like, uh, I mean, it puts me in a, I'm just like, like freezing up. Like that is just not me. I can't do that. Like, they're like, well, what are you pursuing? What are your, I'm like, I don't know. I'm just today in there creating. It's just not who I'm wired up to be, but I am trying to do well, you know, I mean, I work hard at the videos that I'm putting out. I work hard at the things that are meaningful to me. But what that may look like is not editing out something that maybe would be embarrassing or a sketch or a painting that I don't love. I mean, I'm, I think I've fueled myself so much to be like, this is bad. I definitely want to show people like, because I, because that's such a high part of my, um, purpose on here is to show that. So not that I don't still have negative thoughts sometimes of like, Oh, I don't, um, is this, do I really want to show this? I'm like, yes, I do. Remember we want to be real on here. So I don't, do you know what I'm saying? I don't want to give the, the, the idea that I'm not trying to be good at things either. It's just having the right voices, saying the right thing and listening to the right thing. Yeah, yeah. So there's this word that I took from a friend of mine recently. I was on his podcast. He the word he used is satisficing. And it's a it's a mix of the word satisfying and sufficing. So in order to defeat the perfectionist, because you will never be fully satisfied with your work, because you will always have a sense of how much better it could be. That's simply the nature of making creative work. You're very aware of the things that didn't quite go to the limits of what you wanted to do you have to instead imbibe an attitude of sufficing that it's good enough for now and the this also ties in with this idea that perfect or something that is you know absolutely perfectly made is not something that's that simply happens or it's not something that we already have in our minds and then we put it onto a page but it's something that we arrive at over many iterations of doing work that is not quite good enough. And this constant process of putting out videos will lead to over time, like maybe in three years or two years, I don't know what kind of trajectory these things have, but it's certainly this way with my art that over time I have reached a level of good with my art that is far beyond the idea of perfect that I had five years ago. And today it is not perfect. Today it is just, oh, this is good, Nishant. You did good today. But it is still may, much, much further ahead than what I thought would be incredible five years ago if I could just manage this. And I bet you're and enjoying yeah, the I've process only come to more it. now too. You're right. And I've only come to it from enjoying it and from doing it. Like enjoyment is the only fuel that has made it possible for me to do it for five years. Like I don't think I would have been able to carry on for so long if I didn't keep finding the joy in it. Yeah. And your tools stay sharp. We're able to create, um, like jump into creativity a lot faster when our tools are sharp. And when I say tools, I mean things like not just the pencil sharpened, right. But the, the eye hand coordination, be able to like, not even just hot eye hand, but be able to look and see and see well and see in an excited creator way where it's, Oh, I've got to put that down. Like even I've got to put that down on paper that wanes. 
when it's not kept sharp. I mean, I could even have just a couple days sometimes go by, two or three days. Maybe I've been sick. Maybe there's just whatever. It doesn't happen as much anymore because I've created so many ways to be able to keep creativity in my life. But if I've not been able to create for even two or three days, I can just go in the studio and be like, I'll stand there and just look around and be like, did I forget to how to be an artist? Like, what do I like to draw or paint? Where, how do I use my stuff? I don't, I feel like a stranger in there and I have to just go, just go grab some, I feel like a zombie, go grab something, just sit down. And then it's like, oh, it's back. But it does take some I don't even have to be painting like real paint. When I say real paintings, I mean something that's like on canvas finished work, right? But I've developed, because I have all these different mediums that I use, one of the things that it does, I have mediums that are a little more like I've got some time. I need, you know, it's going to take some setup, cleanup time. And then I have things where it's like the dinner's in the oven. I've got 10 minutes. I haven't had a chance to sketch all day. I can go grab my pastels and draw what like because things are sharp I it doesn't take me I can just look over my shoulder and it's like oh there's something exciting do you know does that resonate with you Nishant about like keeping the eyes sharp so I just feel like when I'm really sharp I can look at something very uninspiring and find something exciting in it I can sit in the doctor's office and there's shapes and stuff jumping out all over the place. That's also a good way to get the doctor to come in fast is pull your sketchbook out. They always come in as soon as you get your sketchbook out. I I have realized that now I am incapable of being bored anywhere. Yes. Anywhere you put me, if I have a sketchbook and a pen, I you can like I I can go to an airport and sit for two hours. I don't mind. I can be in a queue and it can be long and I don't mind. And uh, so there's a bit of the engineer here that uh, when I was studying as an engineer, I studied this thing called control engineering. And part of it is this specific thing called uh, system identification. So it's when you don't understand a system, like it's like a black box. You don't know what it, what's inside it. You don't know what it does. How do you start to figure out what it does? So there are these techniques and these methodologies with a lot of math, but it's a lot of just general human figuring things out. Like you, you prod it and then you see what it does. If it's a computer, what if I put this signal into it? What, what do I see on the other end? So what's happening? What's happening inside here? Like you, you learn how to, how to identify the system when you can't really open it up and look into it. So there are a lot of techniques around it. And I feel like this is something we also do as humans. So we are constantly trying to figure out what is it that excites me? What is it that's interesting to me? And you can't open yourself up and read it and be like, oh, this is it. Or that is it. Or this is the kind of video I like to make. This is the kind of art that gives me joy. There's no written down answer. It's a process of figuring it out by trying lots of interesting different things. And you can make the argument that that process of figuring things out also sort of develops your taste. So if you didn't go through that process, this would not have been the thing that excited you. So uh, I go out and now I think that I have become faster at understanding where there is sneaky art. 
I have become faster at looking and then distilling it down to the lines that I'm going to put in my page. Like I'm already seeing it like that. And now that process that used to take me an hour and a half now takes me half the amount of time, but I'm doing more and I'm saying more because I've just become this, this machine is running more smoothly now. And it's sometimes a sharp, it's a sharpened tool. It's a sharpened tool and you need to keep oiling it and you need to keep sharpening it. Or it goes but, dull. Uh, over time, you also gain this confidence that, you know, even if it's a little rusty, I just need to get it going again and then it'll, I'll get it back. I'll get it back. So there's a bit of muscle memory here, right? Like you pick up a pen and then you put it to the paper and then you just do things and suddenly you get into the flow of being an artist again, even if it's been a week or two weeks or something like that. And I find that super interesting how that works. This is the point at which we ended our first recording. I hope you've enjoyed listening so far. Before we go on, I would love to tell you about some ways that you can be part of making this podcast. I am always eager to hear from listeners. If you want to contribute to this episode's discussion topics, sign up for my email publication, The Sneaky Art Post. Find the link in the show notes to read the best insights from this episode and to contribute your own thoughts to it. The Sneaky Art Podcast is 100% independent. This means it is created by me and supported by listeners such as yourself. If you enjoyed this episode, support the work that went into making it by following the link to buy me a coffee. In the second part of this conversation, we dive deeper into exactly how Sandy makes her art. How did she arrive at the tools that she prefers and the medium that she most enjoys? What is the role of observation in her practice? And how does she use reference images in interesting ways to produce the work that she does on the canvas? This section of the conversation was a complete surprise to me because I only expected we would speak for another 20 or 30 minutes. Instead, we kept going for an hour. Lots of lovely words and great ideas. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Mm-hmm.